Part 2 City Chapter 48 A Singing Kiss He found his way to the concert hall out in the West End. He gave his name to a stagehand and was seated in the middle of the front row. Someone he assumed was the director sat behind him, coughing and taking snuff. Fan of Lady Serbs, the man wheezed, leaning forward. Lawrence turned his head. A friend, he said. Lucky man, she's a gem, exclaimed the director. Will you give me your comments after the show? Of course. I shall be perhaps a little too kind regarding Lydia. The man croaked out a laugh. (laughs) That will be unnecessary. The candles were doused, and Lawrence sat through about ten minutes of rather strained singing before Lydia made her entrance. He was awed by the way she dominated the stage. It was not as if she owned the stage, but almost as if she was the stage. She moved as if she had applied for and received diplomatic immunity from gravity. She entered silently from the rear of the stage, dressed in a Valkyrie's gown, and stood watching a pair of lovers intently, her eyes hooded and pained. When the other woman left, the man sat by a fountain and swished his feet in a shimmer of artificial water. Lydia drifted towards him, her body alive with yearning. The man glanced towards her butt. She stepped behind a pillar, leaned against it, and turned an anguished face to heaven. She opened her mouth, and Lawrence dropped his jaw. The delicious shock of unremembered talent rippled through him. Lydia's voice seemed to start from nowhere and everywhere, from her body, from her eyes, from the walls around her. It had a clear, pure tone, a gorgeous, controlled soprano. Yet her technique seemed immaterial. Her song was laden with a blind, despairing passion for things lost. And Lawrence was startled to feel tears in his eyes. He was sitting in a direct line from the man to Lydia. She turned from the pillar and gazed straight at Lawrence. And at that moment he would have traded ten years of his life to know Italian. As she sang, Lydia's arms lifted, reaching for him. He thought this was supposed to be directed at the man on stage, but he knew she was singing to him in a voice of such longing that Lawrence felt his soul hammering at his skin to rise and meet it. Ah, happy is the man embraced by a woman's clear and welcome passion. Strangely enough, Lawrence had been so immersed in family tectonics that he had almost lost sight of his attraction to Lydia. He recalled it now. It arose again as if it had never left, and tears ran down his cheeks. Beauty has been drained from me, he thought blindly, and suddenly the reality of Mary and Kay's world became clear. It was a worthwhile world, a caring world, perhaps, but a world with little beauty, a world of oppression and injustice, power and prestige, victims and resentment, 
all the massed bitterness of the excluded which had been preying on his soul seemed to lift and fly away from him, leaving behind mute wonder at a state of grace he had almost forgotten. Here, here are the fruits of privilege, he thought, and the word privilege had none of Mary's meanings. It was a state she could now fill if she so desired. Lydia's song rose around him, echoing through the almost empty hall, lifting his soul, burning clear all wasting fogs, and Lawrence felt as if he were rising to meet her, to meet himself, to meet all that is best and most pure in the world. <laughs> Will you still be kind? wheezed the director behind him, laughing. Lawrence nodded, unable to speak. I will be kind, he thought. I will be kind without guilt. He sat silently through the rest of the performance. For him, Lydia was the only singer. The others merely shouted on key. After the performance was over, he sat silently in his chair until the director plucked his sleeve and took him to Lydia's dressing room. Lawrence knocked and opened the door and saw Lydia in the light of many candles. She was removing her makeup, peering at her own reflection in the dim light. Hearing the door open, she turned. Samuel, she cried, could you not wait until I was a little less in both worlds? The lad was eager, wheezed the director. Can't say as I blame him. Well done, lass, he said, nodding significantly and retiring. It's good to see you, Larry, said Lydia. Do you mind watching, or do you want to wait outside? Lawrence shook his head, taking a seat. Lydia watched him from the mirror. Did you meet my father? Yes, we went to the gallery this morning. He's very fond of you. Lawrence smiled. I feel like a bit of an invalid with him sometimes. I had no idea how intelligent he really is. He envies you, you know, said Lydia, smoothing cold cream on her cheeks. Really? It's all theory to him. You are making it real. You also listen well, and he needs that. Philosophers love giving advice to practical men. It makes all their work worthwhile. You were wonderful, said Lawrence softly. You liked it. More than that, more than that. I hope I'm not gushing when I say I was enraptured. Lydia smiled. Oh, we artists hate gushing. <laughs> I don't know why, but I assumed your singing was a sort of hobby... I'm sorry. That's how it started, confessed Lydia, wiping her face with a soft cloth. I spent a lot of time squawking the most <coughs> abysmal nonsense. I don't know why, but I was somehow sure that I had more to offer. Samuel was enormously helpful. He is a raspy ball of pure passion. He challenged me to go further. Don't be afraid of passion, he kept telling me. It took me a long time to believe him. Why do you think we are so afraid of passion? she asked, turning in her chair to face him. Lawrence blushed. I don't know. I suppose it seems easier to ignore sometimes. We always think that no one else feels as we feel. We are alone in our passions. We hide what is precious far from others and ourselves. That's a kind of poverty, though, isn't it? asked Lydia like a miser who prefers to starve than spend. I have loved you, 
from the moment I saw you, said Lawrence suddenly, feeling dizzy. Lydia sat motionless, looking at him. When I first saw you about a year ago, he said in a rush, you seemed like all the good things in the world. The way you laughed, the way you moved, it was more than... But I thought, and, and I don't know why, she is not for me. You, you seemed like a statue. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I've never felt this before. You have never felt love? asked Lydia. No. <sighs> Every time I see you, I think, I know love. Then the next time I see you, I feel even more. It's... <sighs> It's quite confusing. Even even if you don't love me. Sorry, that sounded presumptuous. If you don't love me, I'm still grateful. You have brought so much to me just by being who you are. Lydia laughed, and Lawrence's heart froze. <laughs> but Lawrence, she cried, I do love you. Lawrence felt his soul break free of all fearful moorings. He moved forward, his mind whirling. He fell to his knees before her chair, turning his face up to her. She reached down and touched his earlobe, caressing it between thumb and forefinger. Lawrence reached up and stroked her earlobe. They both burst into laughter, stood and embraced. He fondled the back of Lydia's neck and leaned into heaven to receive her kiss. Chapter 49. An Ending Mary flung the vase at the full-length mirror. As the crashing echoed around her, she whirled and swept the pretty ornaments from the mantelpiece over the fire. She took her thin dress between her hands and tore a long strip up her front. Leaping on the bed, she grabbed the canopy over her head and pulled at it with all her might. Her arms were taut, her veins protruding. She wrenched, but it held firm. Finally, when she was straining so hard that her feet had almost left the bed, she cried out, let go, and fell onto the sheets. Parting the fabric with her hands, she burrowed under the blankets, pushing her face into the sheets and loosed a long, harrowing cry. It was turning into a difficult day. That morning, giddy, with sudden freedom, Kay had agreed to sign over to Mary several thousand pounds for charity work. Mary was quite aware that Kay had fallen in love and was guilty about abandoning her friend, and Mary had found it quite easy to get her to agree to the transfer. After breakfast, she had accompanied Kay to the bank. Kay had drawn out a few hundred crisp, new, ten-pound notes, handed them over to Mary, kissed her cheek, and left to meet Jonathan. Mary had leaned against a marble pillar, sweat running down her forehead, her eyes unfocused, the bank counter swimming before her. Her trembling hands kept rising to pat the packet in her breast pocket. People passed by on business of their own, their faces set in professional casts. The pillar was cool against Mary's shoulders. She had a sudden image, a memory, of being lost in a wood some time after being thrown out by Farmer Jigger. Mary leaned her head back, her palms almost tinkling with forgotten scratches, shivering in a solitary echo. The memory was strong, sudden. Mary 
tasted the berries and roots she had lived on during her years of wandering. One afternoon, half starved, she had stumbled into a clearing in an endless wood. A cottage stood there. A young man and woman sat on a tree trunk beside it. The woman was holding a book, talking and gesticulating as the man peered at the pages. Mary crept closer through the undergrowth and huddled beneath a bush watching them. The woman had stood, laughing, explaining something to the man, who smiled at her, his eyes glowing with love. They had talked for over an hour, then took an axe each and walked off hand in hand into the depths of the forest. Mary waited for a time, then crawled forward on her hands and knees. Behind the cottage was a little shed. Inside, a cow stood alone, slowly chewing cud. Mary had crept under the cow's belly, placed a teat in her mouth, and sucked at it ravenously. The cow had shifted and lowed. Mary's hands had wandered up the beast's flanks as she sucked, stroking, caressing, pleading. The cow had settled, and when Mary was full, she lay down beside the cow and fell fast asleep. She awoke to the feeling of the cow's rough tongue licking her cheek. It was quite dark. Mary reached up and tickled the cow's ears as it licked her face. Sitting up, she had heard the sounds of passionate love-making coming from within the hut. The man and woman called each other's names, laughing and moaning. The cries of ecstasy rang in Mary's ears as the cow licked her face. She sat caressing the beast's cheeks, weeping bitterly, aching with loneliness. The memory was strong. Mary had never thought about it before. It was lost in the void of her neglected yesterdays. She wandered out of the bank. The day it was bright and sunny. The street teemed with busy people. Mary gazed up and down the road. It seemed that the stores, formerly such a foreign country, were now wide open. She held a key she had never held before. She drifted up the street, looking at the shops in wonder. If I want a sticky bun, I, I can buy one. If I want a painting, it is mine, she thought, her mind striving to grapple with a great unknown. She walked up to a fruit stall, picked up an orange, and stared at it in wonder. From the country, miss? asked the vendor, an old man with an enormous nose. Yes, said Mary. Can't get these in the country, grinned the man. They're called oranges because of their colour. Juiciest goodness you ever tasted. Try one. If you want more, I can get you as many as you want. Mary leaned her head forward, opening her mouth. Heavens, miss! cried the man, taking the fruit from her. That's a bitter start. You've got to peel them like this, he said, taking a paring knife and expertly shaving the skin. Try it now, he said, handing the juicy innards over to her. Mary took a bite and almost cried in agony at the tart sweetness. The juice ran down her chin and she shook her head, leaning forward. <laughs> Not pretty, but pretty good, eh, miss? laughed the man. How much? gasped Mary. A shilling a dozen. 
More an apple's I dare say, but these are magic for the sniffles. Eat one every morning, and the only use for your handkerchief you'll find, I wager, is dropping it for pretty gentlemen to return. Can I bag you two dozen? No charge for the one running down your chin. Yes, said Mary, please. The old man grabbed them two by two and dropped them into a brown paper bag. I can tie it for you if you want, he offered. Mary shook her head. That'll be two shillings, then. Mary reached into her pocket, felt around, and pulled out a ten-pound note. The man's eyes widened as she handed it to him. My word, miss, he exclaimed, taking the note with two fingers. I've never spied one of these before. I ain't they pretty? I can't change it, miss. No? The man laughed. This could buy all my fruit, my cart, my clothes, and probably a few of my limbs. I need something smaller, my lady. That, that's the smallest I have. Sorry, apologized Mary. The man shook his head with a wry smile. Well, we are all different, ain't we? I tell you what, miss, he said, handing over the bag. These are complimentary. It takes a good memory to manage a lot of money, I say, and I'm sure you'll remember old Jeremiah when you've a mind to wander with more practical money. Thank you. I, I will, said Mary, taking the bag. She curtsied, making Jeremiah laugh, then wandered off into the crowd. Starving, she thought he would be snarling. What a world! Those that want lack, those that have get. Soon, Mary stood before a dressmaker's, Algernon and Sons. She stared at it for a moment, then went in, thinking, What do I need a dress for? The interior of the shop was dark shrouded with endless rolls of fabric. A young man sat doing a crossword puzzle, his pencil in his mouth, his hair sticking out in all directions. He looked up as she came in. "'Sorry, miss,' he said, returning to his puzzle. "'No walk-ins. By appointment only. We're wholesalers.' "'I want to buy some dresses,' said Mary resolutely. "'Leave a card,' said the young man carelessly, taking his pencil from his mouth. "'We'll be in touch.' "'Do you make dresses from gold?' asked Mary." The man's pencil paused. He looked up, curious. Excuse me? I want the best, said Mary slowly. You understand? The young man paused, then sighed and rose. Not really. Just a moment, he said, disappearing into the dark folds of hanging fabric. Mary walked forward and touched a bolt, astounded at the smoothness of the cloth. So much softer than a cow's tongue, she thought, and felt a sudden nauseous shiver. An older man suddenly appeared at her elbow. Rupert Algernon, at your service, he said with a deep bow. Whom do I have the honour of addressing? Mary, Mary O'Donnell. Well, good miss, my son informs me that you were in a hurry for the finest clothes. May I ask who referred to you? I was just passing, only passing by said Mary. I saw the sign and, and came in. Rupert looked at her for a moment, then smiled. Please excuse the forwardness, good miss, but have you recently come into money? Why? asked Mary sharply. Oh, a thousand apologies. Your, your language and manners are, of course, impeccable, but here at Algernon and Sons we pride ourselves in making the clothes fit the woman in every way. For instance, I had a woman in tears here just yesterday. She had recently inherited some money and had gone to one of our more careless competitors who had sold her the most extravagant costumes. 
She went to a ball and was, I'm sad to say, a laughingstock. She appeared too eager to appear at one with her station, if I may put it in such a manner. I ask only for the sake of service, not insult. I see, said Mary carefully. Yes, I have but recently come into money. Rupert nodded delicately. And your circumstances before? Again, I ask only for the sake of finding a perfect fit. What do you mean? The man tapped his teeth with the tip of his finger, then stroked his chin. For instance, were you known in London before your sudden fortune? That is quite important. No, I, I was quite unknown. Very good. That simplifies things. And your former attire, what are you used to wearing? Whatever I could steal from the clothes line, thought Mary, and almost giggled, her dizziness increasing. I, I would say not, not especially formal she said, with effort. And the venue for your new apparel? Where do you expect to wear your purchases? Balls? Dinners? Promenading? Mary frowned. I imagine that most of your remaining questions will be quite irrelevant, she said. I assure you I will be a most unusual customer. I am looking for clothes to give speeches in. In radical circles? asked Rupert. I certainly hope not, replied Mary. Then... Uh, I would suggest something with the simple style of uncluttered elegance. Hmm. Some of the new light material, well-fitted, grey and white, perhaps with a darker sash. An outfit which says, I am serious, but not masculine. That sounds about right, said Mary, taking a deep breath. Calm down, she ordered herself. Very well, said Rupert. Now... I have several sketches I would like you to look over. Just for reference, we will, of course, create something entirely new for you. But first, if you will tell me your measurements, I... I, I have no idea, said Mary hesitantly. Rupert looked at her suddenly, his composure breaking for a brief moment, as if he had a sudden insight as to the depths of her prior poverty. No matter, he said calmly, we will measure you now, if you will come this way. Mary took a step back. I, I do not like to be touched, she said tensely, her stomach churning. It is painless, said Rupert uncertainly. No doubt, replied Mary, yet there it is. Would you prefer a woman? I, I can ask my wife. That doesn't matter. If you would prefer, I can go elsewhere. No, I, I want to help. But you understand, if you go to a doctor, he must examine you. There will be no examinations, said Mary sharply. Tell me what to do, and I will measure myself. Certainly, that would be most satisfactory. And can I be assured of your discretion in all matters? Why, of course. We are quite trustworthy. How much do you need to start? Rupert smiled. We take no retainer, good miss. We measure, design, and sketch without any obligation on your part. You review the sketches, pay for the materials, and only if you are happy with the results do you pay us for our labor. Our charge is very progressive. You will not pay if you are unhappy. That is remarkable, said Mary. It is our philosophy, said Rupert. Do you not think true talent always finds its just reward? Yes, said Mary, pressing her palms to her eyes. Yes, I do. Then we are of like minds, beamed Rupert. I am so pleased. Will you come with me now? Certainly, said Mary. 
Rupert lifted a fold of fabric for her to pass and followed her into the fitting room. The fitting room was a dark chamber lit only by a single skylight. Mary felt a sudden chill. Three female forms were mounted on poles draped carelessly with fabric. One of the forms, breasts exposed, had a number of large needles stuck into the side of its waist. Mary felt a sudden wave of dizziness. She backed up, running into Rupert. She turned around quickly, her eyes wild, her hands raised before her. No, this is not right. I can't. Give me a few days. Are you all right, Miss O'Donnell? asked Rupert, leaning forward in the dark, concerned. No, cried Mary. Everyone asks. It's nothing. I must, I must leave. I shall return when I am ready. Thank you for your time. Excuse me, I must go. Mary blundered forward, lost in the draping folds. She resisted the urge to cry out as she thrust the heavy fabrics aside with her hands. Bursting out into the storefront, she ran forward, wrenched the door open, and escaped into the street. Miss! Miss! cried Rupert from the doorway. Miss, leave your card! Mary nodded, vaguely waving a hand. Hailing a carriage, she crawled into it, her heart pounding. Where to, miss? asked the driver. Hotel. The Waverley, gasped Mary, her vision swimming. She made it to the hotel, staggered up the stairs, holding the banister, then ran into her room, where she proceeded to destroy everything in sight. Chapter 50 A Message from Beyond Kay was shocked at the state of the room. She was no less shocked at the state of her friend. When she opened the door, she saw Mary sitting on the floor, a shroud of blankets pulled up to her nose. Mary? she whispered. Mary's wide eyes turned to her. Kay! she cried, tightening her hands on the blankets. Thank you! Oh, you should have been with me this morning. I walked. I had an orange. Have you ever tasted one? They're wonderful, she cried giddily. I couldn't spend a penny. I tried, but no one would change the money. Then I went to a dressmaker's and had the most wonderful talk with, with, oh, what was his name? Something in the sense. Oh, well, I'm going for a fitting as soon, <laughs> as soon as I feel up to it. How are you? How is Jonathan? He's a wonderful man. You, you are both very lucky. Come in. Don't stand by the door. Mary got up suddenly, dropping the covers from her. "'Mary!' cried Kay. "'What happened to your dress?' Mary glanced down at the savage tear on her midriff, then looked up, her eyes mortified. "'Oh, my!' she said, touching her cheek. "'I don't know. It was torn. "'Mary, Mary, sit down. Please, you, you're, you're frightening me.' Mary sat down immediately. "'Please don't be frightened, Kay,' she begged. "'You are my, my best friend. I don't want to scare you. I'll be all right. I, I've come this far. Oh, but Kay, Kay, don't be frightened. I am. I'm very frightened. I seem to have lost some sort of control. I, I've never acted like such a child, <laughs> not even when I was a child,' she said with a brittle laugh. "'You seem very nervous,' said Kay. "'It's very stupid!' cried Mary with a flash of anger. Here I am. I have struggled for so long to make something of myself, to find a place where my gifts could express themselves. I was so struck, you know, she said, suddenly tearful. I was so struck, do you know that? 
had no pity for myself. I survived everything. I almost became someone else. That's what it felt like. <laughs> now I am in London. London! And I have the best, most generous friend in the world. Though I have done a lot for you as well. <laughs> and I'm ready to start my lectures. And, and I seem to have sort of oh, lost myself. It makes no sense. Now, of all times, it makes no sense. Hush! said Kay, her senses almost supernaturally alert. You mustn't carry on so. I don't know if this helps, but when I was six or so... Six! cried Mary, shuddering. I'm a grown woman! You're right. I I'm sorry, said Kay instantly. She looked at Mary for a moment, then shook her head. It was just that I was lost for a whole day in the woods, and I didn't cry once. But when Larry found me, I burst into tears. Oh! And did Larry ever burst into tears? cried Mary. Of course not! He was the crown prince of everything! Mary, said Kay, confused, I, I could give you money because Larry gave me money. Oh, and who gave him money? Who sent him to Italy? Of course, I forget. He earned it by being such a good boy, and I was burned at the stake because I was a bad girl. Mary looked around the room, dazed, then shook her head violently. No, Kay, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's a good man, and you are a, you are a good woman. Everything you are giving me I will repay with interest. Interest. You know that, don't you? I loathe charity. I love the poor. They need charity, but I loathe it for myself. But why? asked Kay. Because I have earned more than charity, cried Mary. Because the world should kneel at my feet, yet I must scrabble and beg for scraps like a stray dog. Oh, Kay. Do you ever wonder what your life would have been like without... Should I come back another time? asked Kay, standing hesitantly. No, cried Mary, her eyes widening. No, don't go. I'm sorry. Tell me how to be. I, I want you to stay, but I, but I, but I want to speak my mind. But, but I can't. I can't. Why not? I'm your friend. I want to help, said Kay, sitting again. Mary shook her head. Oh, I am not good to my friends. No, that's not true. I am just... To my friends, I will make good use of your money. Good use. That is my plan. My plan. But what is my plan? <laughs> it seems so clear. I can't remember. Lady is gone. And I... I. Kay leaned forward, raising her hand. Mary flinched. Hush. I, I just want to feel your forehead, said Kay gently. Touching Mary's hairline with her palm, she found the skin burning. Good heavens! cried Kay. You have a fever. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just agitated. <laughs> Your limbs would twitch too if you had run so hard so long. Mary shivered, stood suddenly, went over to the wash basin, poured a tall glass of water, and drank it in a single gulp. She stood with her back to Kay for a few moments, then turned to look at her friend, her face quite composed. Please excuse me, Kay, she said evenly. That was unusual for me. I think it was a terrible strain. She smiled. Now, tell me, why did you come? I... I wanted to thank you for something. Mary nodded. I'm glad. What is that? When I was having lunch with Jonathan, said Kay, he told me that it was you who sent him up when I was talking with Mother. I wanted to thank you for that. 
You're welcome, said Mary. I wanted to come in myself, but I thought that would only have sent Lady Barbara into further agitation. You are very wise. I, I don't know what would have happened if... Mary waved her hand. No matter. We all need help. I help you. You help me. That's what friendship means. Are you feeling better now? asked Kay cautiously. Oh, much, exhaled Mary. It wasn't the right time to be alone. So tell me, woman to woman, she said, sitting down. What do you think is going to happen with Jonathan? What do you mean? Well, how do you feel about him? Kay pursed her lips and smiled. Oh, <laughs> you know, he's wonderful. He's got such a merry spirit. He had, me, he had me stitches at lunch with stories of his school days. I think he's very handsome. Very. Don't you? Yes. I'm glad I... I don't have much experience with... That. Have you kissed? Kay blushed. Oh, well... No, not really. He kissed me on the cheek after lunch, and held my hand under the table before we ate. What do you think of all that? Or what? You know, the the carnal side. Kay took a deep breath. Oh, that. Well, I suppose it's fine. I, I don't really think about it. Why not? It's... I'm just not... I've never really thought of myself that way. Why on earth not? You're so attractive. How so? asked Kay softly. You have such lovely eyes, and your hands are graceful, though a little flighty, and your hair is very fine. Kay touched her pale hair self-consciously. I just think, you know, he could have any woman in London, but he wants you. But why? Doesn't that strike you as strange? You mustn't think that exclaimed Mary. Love is rare for the rejected. Why? Because we were rejected in the past? No, because we expect to be rejected in the present. Don't lose the natural trust of love, Kay. The man loves you. He walked through fire for you. Don't worry about why. Don't analyze his heart. It, ha it has its own reasons. Accept his love. Tell me, are you satisfied with him? Oh, yes. Then love him and leave his love to himself. And for God's sake, don't try second-guessing what he wants. He wants you, pure and simple. He is a good man. You are a good woman. Be happy. Be happy. You're right, of, of course, said Kay. But I just sometimes wonder, not because of what Mother said, whether... He loved me because I was unable to free myself, because I was trapped, but because he had the power to save me. Mary smiled. Then save him. What? Look, he's a good man, but we both know he's a little unfocused. He seems to have no answer to the essential question, what am I going to do with my life? You were helping me. You were, you were taking control of your finances. You were going to be a great philanthropist, but... Jonathan? What is he going to do between the here and the hereafter? Just bounce around? You can save him by getting him on track. How? Get him started on a career. A career? Lawrence has a career. Agricultural reformer. 
Lydia has a career, singer, Lord Serbs has one, philosopher, you have one, I have one. What's yours? What's yours? In a nutshell. Justice, grinned Mary, in a nutshell. We all have a purpose, except Jonathan. Get him started. Save him from his drifting. You see, okay, if one person thinks they're doing all the saving, the relationship can never be equal, and you deserve nothing less than complete equality. What career do you envision for him? Well, he invests, doesn't he? Why doesn't he talk to a financial institution? It's just a thought. An interesting thought, though, mused Kay. You'll both be happier, even happier. Talk to him now, tonight. How? Don't be critical, whatever you do. Men hate that. Ask him what he plans to do with the rest of his life. Let him talk, listen, and help him clarify his desires. That is an astoundingly good idea. Mary smiled. Do you still think I am fevered? Kay laughed. No, I suppose not. Thank you, Mary. You are a true friend. After Kay had left, Mary lay on her bed. If I am wrong, she thought, if there is a God who will call me to atonement when I am dead, he may rail against me for everything but today. Today he will admit I did a good deed. That will have to be enough. Chapter 51 Two Departures It had taken on all the furtive characteristics of a coming war. Adam strode up and down the rows of the looms, his eyes sharp, his heart sick. Resentful heads were lowered over the swishing shuttles. The air was thick with intrigue. Good Lord, thought Adam, how dismal. Not in the plan, never in the plan. At the distant sound of the church bell striking noon, all the workers folded their hands and sat back in their chairs. Lunch, muttered Adam, taking a deep breath, a few moments to myself. Aye, lunch, called Jake from the back of the factory. That's so much more than lunch. Excuse me. Well, he said, standing and rubbing his beard, we've been a-thinking, and a talking merchant, and we've tricked on a pretty thought. I'm not interested said Adam shortly. You have gotten all you asked for, and more. Ow! We're not interested in more, cried Jake with a sudden grin. We's interested in less. One less, to be smart. We's interested in setting you free, merchant. He snapped his fingers. Ah, that got his attention, friends. You see, it has tumbled on us that you don't like us very much, merchant. And despite the fact that you give good back rubs, we can only say the feeling flows both ways. So we have a situation here. Two parties stuck together, neither like any other. Well, we've tricked on a way out of our thorny dance. Let me guess. Leaving and letting me hire good workers? Asked Adam. Or is it working hard and keeping your mouth shut? Jake shook his head with a smile. Nay, nay, we can't leave. The good Lord Larry would rain hard on you if you broke up his little party. Yet one of us will be showing his heels. Merchant. 
Adam stared at the man, his mind searching for the whip. You see, we stretches and groans each morning, and then we sit down pretty as you please and shove the shuttles while you storm up and down with a whip. So we be scratching our noggins and saying, What do we need him for? Jake spread his hands. Now, your value may have escaped us, but it seems to us that we do all the working while you do all the whacking. You think I want to be here? demanded Adam. Jake smiled. Why nay, merchant? I think he'd rather be just about anywhere but here. So take our blessings and be off. I can't do that. Why not? Getting fond of lashing. Adam's cheeks flushed a deep red. Let me tell you something, since you want the cards laid on the table. I have no sympathy for you. I do not think you are good people. I think you are outcasts because you are petty, cowardly, vicious, and greedy. I scowled Jake. Life has made us so. Has it? demanded Adam. You know, I had no education. I was born in the streets, and I've spent my whole life getting away from people like you. People who blame the world for their own failures. People who expect something for nothing. You are all fools. The world owes you nothing. My philosophy, life is hard. Be harder. Pretty, pretty speech, cried Jake, clapping sardonically. You can't expect something for nothing? Then why are you paid for walking around? Lord, I've walked more in this life than ye could in twenty, and I was never tossed a penny for my footings. I am paid because the looms are mine. Why are they yours? Cousin, you made them? Why, we make the wool, and we don't get none. You get paid, which we can't spend. None take our coin. That's your own doing. You, you, you fight, you steal, you curse. We was provoked, cried one of the men. We be branded, cursed, we have to fight back. Look, said Adam, striving for calm, you have to... Rise above that. People think you are bad. Fight back and you prove them right. Bah! Spat Jake. Milky words from a milky man. Ye couldn't stand straight if ye was propped. Here's to what, merchant. We ain't working until ye leave. We're taking no more beatings, no more sneers, no more slavings to make ye rich. We work for ourselves, or not at all. You all, all resolved in this? It seems Christian fair, said a man. I can't sleep for scars, said another. Ye said we were supposed to help ourselves. This is how we want it, said another. Adam looked at their set faces for a long moment. All right, he said finally. All right, I have no more patience. I got into this because I thought Lord Carvey was an investor. I was wrong. He prefers... Tinkering with souls to making money. <laughs> no matter, I've only lost a month or so. All right. I will leave as, as I came with a knapsack and a set of blueprints. The looms are yours. You can find your own buyers. You can pay yourselves. You can arrange transportation as you please. Adam nodded. It is all yours. Yeah, that, lads? Cried Jake triumphantly. It's all ours! A cheer rang out in the factory. You're a noble soul, shouted Jake. Best wishes for you. Adam stared at him bitterly. Ah, you're fools to think it is so easy, but life will teach you. He cast his eyes over the looms, over the flushed, jubilant faces, over the ramshackle factory, then walked over to his little desk, picked up his knapsack, and walked out of the door. He walked 
for a few minutes without thinking, driven by a blind need to put some distance between himself and the factory. Finally, he looked around and found himself on the road to the Carvey mansion. Struck by a sudden thought, he felt in his pocket and pulled out Lawrence's promissory note. He stared at it. This entitles the bearer full access to all my accounts. The signature and seal would be accepted by any bank in the realm. Adam broke into a sudden sweat. This could be my ticket, he thought rapidly. For virtually unlimited funds, I could, I could take it. It would be borrowing. I would pay it back double. In moments of crisis, habits rule. Adam had struggled up from nothing. He had never stolen, never cheated, never lied. The resolution that had brought him this far suddenly reasserted itself. No, he whispered, shocked at the sudden depth of his temptation. No, not that way. Adam thrust the note back into his pocket, his hands shaking. He looked around him at the solid, swaying trees of the clear blue sky. Shaking his head, he laughed suddenly, adjusted his hat, and strolled up the road towards the Carvey mansion. The door was answered by the maid. "'I have a delivery for Lady Barbara,' he said. "'One moment,' said Edith, glancing disdainfully at his clothing. Adam whistled as he waited. When Lady Barbara came to the door, he smiled. "'I have a package for you, my lady,' he said. "'What is that, then?' she asked sharply. Adam handed over the note. The old woman glanced at it, then stared at Adam in shock. "'Can you read?' she demanded. "'Do you know what this is?' "'Yes, my lady,' said Adam. "'It is a promissory note. It entitles the bearer to draw whatever he wants from Lord Carvey's accounts. Why are you returning it?' "'Because I no longer work for Lord Carvey. And why is that?' "'It is a private matter, my lady,' said Adam. Lady Barbara glared at him, her senses acute, confused.' Well, I suppose that is very honest, she muttered. Do you wish to leave any message for him? No, milady, said Adam gently. If experience cannot teach him, neither can I. But what happened? she asked, her voice taut with curiosity. I simply found out that because of his restrictions I cannot do what I was hired to do. That is all. It happens all the time. Who will run the factory? I leave that in your hands, milady. Lady Barbara frowned, then smiled suddenly. Yes, well, thank you for returning the note. Good day, she said, closing the door. Holding the note between thumb and forefinger, Lady Barbara slowly walked into the drawing room and sat on the couch. This entitles the bearer full access to my accounts. Lady Barbara stared at it. Father Jones had informed her that the tithe had been paid. Yet it was only a loan, she thought. My daughter is not for sale. It is for her own good. And Larry, Larry will destroy our fortune if I leave it in his hands. For ten minutes she stared at the note, her cheeks flushing. Moral Habits 
being what they are, she finally rose, went to her writing desk, pulled out a sheet of paper, and began writing a letter to her banker. As he walked, Adam's mind whirled. What am I going to do now? He thought. There's no point roaming the countryside looking for a sensible aristocrat. That trait seems to have been bred out of them generations ago. Oh, who do I know who has brains, vision, and money? Lord Slurps? He expressed little interest. He's too abstract for such practical work. Jonathan? Too flighty. Couldn't be relied upon. Mary? Adam almost shuddered. God, no. She was the force behind this disaster. His mind whirled as he walked through the blinding brightness. I must get to London. Lawrence is giving a series of speeches on agriculture. Perhaps I can find someone there who listens to what he says. It was a desperate hope, but it was the best he could come up with. Taking out his wallet, Adam quickly counted his money. Ooh, not much, he noted dismally. I will have to make my way on foot. Somewhat daunted by the discovery, Adam sat down beside the road, propping his chin in his hands and staring at the scenery. The numbness was wearing off. Anger and despair were beginning to make themselves known. The dreary futility of starting over seemed to drain his habitual energy from his limbs. He was so dejected that he didn't even hear the sound of the carriage. "'Is this the road to London, my man?' cried an irritable voice. Adam looked up. A sumptuous carriage stood before him, two fine horses pawing before it, a driver mopping his bow. A man's face glared at him framed in the carriage window. Their eyes met, and a ripple of recognition passed between them. "'Merchant,' thought Adam. "'Merchant!' thought the man in the carriage. "'Is this the road to London?' repeated the man, a little less harshly. "'Yes, sir,' said Adam, standing and brushing his clothes. "'And if I may be so bold as to request a favour, I'm sorely in need of a ride. I'm on a business trip.' "'A business trip?' cried the man, his eyes lighting up guiltily. "'But what sort of business trip?' "'One I would be most happy to discuss with you.' grinned Adam, strength flowing back into his bones. Good companions shorten the road, they say. The man grinned back. Hop in, then. Adam picked up his knapsack and climbed into the carriage. Walk on, cried the man, tapping the roof with his cane. What is your name, sir? he asked, settling back in his seat and regarding Adam closely. Adam Footer, replied Adam. And yours? Squire Pounder, replied the man. Now tell me, what left you abandoned in such a lonely spot? "'Ugh, business gone sour,' replied Adam. "'Saddest story you ever heard. "'I have, in this knapsack, the means to near infinite riches.' Squire Pounder laughed. (laughs) "'So you say?' "'It is true,' said Adam earnestly. "'You have heard of the new woolens?' "'Of course,' replied Squire Pounder, holding a sleeve forward. "'Feel this.' Adam touched the fabric. "'Hmm,' he frowned. "'What? What? "'Well, I'm—' Sure that this is the best to be had, yet it is not the best to be made. Squire Pounder smiled. Go on. Have you ever heard of a power loom? No. Who is it? A most 
bounteous device, smiled Adam, pulling out his blueprints and spreading them on his lap. What on earth is that? On earth, <laughs> courtesy of heaven, this little beauty allows a worker to produce ten times more fabric than doing it by hand. Ten times more and ten times better. Squire Pounder frowned. You are sure you are not overselling a wee bit? he asked skeptically. Such a treasure would transform the realm. Aye, it would, if a man had the vision and resources to bring it about. That's what I was here for. A local lord agreed to set up a workshop, but suddenly got the idea of using it for charity rather than business. He hired only the poorest of the poor, who proved to be exceedingly poor workers. I just left this morning, exhausted by their endless demands. A bad mix, said Squire Pounder judiciously. As I said from the start. But there's no reasoning with a philanthropist. This lord, Lord Lawrence Carvey, the same, sir, you know him? I was just at his house, looking for a friend of mine, said Squire Pounder with more than a trace of irritation. Now, tell me, what would one of these looms cost? And no glossing, mind, I have some experience in these matters. Well, depending on the number ordered, anywhere from five to eight pounds apiece. We had fifty looms here at six pounds apiece. What was their output? Twenty yards a day each. Twenty yards! exclaimed Squire Pounder. Liar! Adam smiled. No, sir. And that was with substandard labor. I calculate thirty yards with good hands. They would pay for themselves in a matter of months, and the rest would be pure, pure profit. Sir, said Adam, aside from the wages and overhead. Squire Pounder leaned back in his chair, his eyes closed, tight, his hands rubbing his legs vigorously. Oh, foul, foul, this is sorely tempting, he cried. Tempting, sir? asked Adam uncertainly. Making money is not a vice. Well, (sighs) sir, said Squire Pounder, letting out a deep breath. You may have noticed a certain aristocratic air to my demeanour. Why, yes, pacified Adam. I first took you for a good Viscount. Then I thought, and don't ask me why, this is a man of business. You have the sensitivity of a good salesman, admitted Squire Pounder. You're right. I was once, as you are now. Yet I performed a service for a lord, and was subsequently elevated into the ranks of the useless. Adam laughed. (laughs) That's an odd sentiment. Aye, so it strikes me sometimes. That was a promise made to my dear late mother, who desperately wanted something better for her only son. So, and forgive my presumption, she wanted you to be useless? Squire Pounder guffawed. (laughs) Well, (laughs) she saw more of the silk finery than the dull daily nature of the station, as it were. She saw Lord as better, and that was what I promised her. Ah, so this oh, this opportunity is tempting because you fear being seduced by business again. It no longer fits my station, said Squire Pounder regretfully. That much is certain, replied Adam with equal remorse. Yet, if you know of anyone in your old circle capable of understanding the power of such an opportunity, I would appreciate— No! cried Squire Pounder, thumping the floor with his cane, almost making Adam start. No! I offered the ride. I will not let you go. I appreciate 
The confidence, sir, it is not misplaced. Yet we are in an interesting dilemma. Squire Pounder nodded. You understand. Some aristocrats invest without incurring any social penalties. Yet for me, so recently risen, it would be viewed as an appalling lapse. There would be no mercy. Adam pursed his lips. May I speak plainly? Oh, please do, sighed Squire Pounder. Oh, it would be a welcome change from my current circle. Whew. Your esteemed mother, would she have preferred you to be a poor aristocrat or a rich merchant? Good Lord, my man, I'm scarcely poor. I do not doubt it. Do you own any land? Well, I suppose I could set a cart up in some corner of Kensington, but no, not really. Then, if I understand your situation correctly, you are currently living off fixed capital? That is true. Are you touching the principal? Well, to live as required requires more than interest. Then it seems to me that your rise is, for want of a better word, unsustainable. Thus it seems possible that you will have the opposite conversation with your son as your mother had with you. Yet for the same reason, poverty. Squire Pounder nodded vigorously. The reasoning was not subtle, but his need was deep. Yes, yes. I see your... Then you must do something to maintain your fortune. This opportunity then fits you like a glove. Let us suppose that I set up an intermediate account. You deposit, I withdraw. Then I deposit the profits. All you have to do is sit back and watch it grow. Squire Pounder frowned, then shook his head. You are, of course, a worthy soul, but I am suspicious by nature. I cannot give you free access to my accounts. Tell me, have you any experience in distributing and marketing? Actually, I have hitherto largely focused on getting the goods produced first. The clear answer being no, said Squire Pounder. I, however, have wide experience in international marketing. I supplied the provisional government with grain during the recent revolution. I have a wide variety of contacts. I speak French. I have experience in shipping. I could not rely on you in these matters. It would be unproductive. Quite right. "'Agreed, Adam. You must be directly involved. "'Your experience would mean the difference between profit and windfall. "'I would welcome the input.' "'No doubt,' said Squire Pounder, rubbing his chin frantically. "'Yet direct participation would elicit a precipitous social fall. "'Yet you seem somewhat unsatisfied with your station at present. "'Acutely. Quite acutely,' Squire Pounder scowled, "'drumming his fingers together rapidly. "'Damn it! I should have left you on the road.' <laughs> that would have been quite wise, smiled Adam. Don't be impertinent. You need me more than I need you. Qu quite right. I, I do apologize. Squire Pounder scowled. You have spoken to no one else about this? Only Lord Carvey. Does he know how to build these looms? These are the only blueprints. But he could build them from what he has. True. But he has, fortunately, gone to London. He is in love. He has no experience in business. I, I do not think we have to worry about him. Squire Pounder paused for a moment. Love? He shook his head suddenly, as if discarding an over-ornate hat, then rubbed his hands gleefully. Good, good, all right. This is the plan. When we get to London, I will give you my address. Come to me Thursday. Now, oh, damn it, Thursday is bad. Oh, as is Friday. Oh, God, and Monday. No, come to me next Tuesday, as if you were delivering a package. I will don a disguise, and we will go to a bank. Not mine. I may be recognised. We will go as two ambitious merchants in search of capital. Will we get anyway? Just watch. I know how to talk to these people. Excellent. 
Swipe Hounder and Adam regarded each other, gripped in the passion of the deal, then reached across the space separating them and shook hands eagerly. Adam did not shudder at the sweat. Chapter 52 Two Rescues Jonathan Edsworth was somewhat surprised at the change in his friend since leaving Dorset. He had an inkling that Lydia would fall for Lawrence the moment she saw him, of course, yet he was a little surprised at the amount of energy she put into getting him into what she called the right position, a phrase which caused Jonathan to make some rather ill-received jokes. When you find someone attractive, he insisted, the first thing to do is borrow a mandolin, hang about under their windows, and bellow love songs at their swaying curtains. Everyone loves to be loved, he said. Lydia contented herself with making several remarks as to the preference of many women to quality, not quantity. Jonathan retorted that she was a hopeless prig. This was one of Jonathan's odd characteristics. He called himself a romantic, yet, like many romantics, he had little sympathy for those on the receiving end of his cannon-like passions. Considering himself the sole repository of true feeling— he viewed women as fortresses of repression best besieged by continual assaults of emotional bombast. It would be quite possible to point out to Jonathan that, despite his claim to the title of lover of women, there was more than a little patronage in his approach. To some degree, he still held the views of his forefathers. Women were helpless maidens in need of rescue— while his ancestors viewed the salvation of women as a matter of military skill and economic strength, Jonathan aimed to redeem them with emotional artillery. In other words, Jonathan prided himself on his passion. Yet, if his emotions had a definite aim, if they were part of a manifesto, so to speak, how could they really be said to be genuine? Here! cried Jonathan. Here, see the liberating display of my passion! Yet, his passions were still a form of display, like the cry-on-cue emotions of the experienced actor. They could easily be termed more of a personal talent than a universal value. Jonathan, of course, left himself little time to ponder these questions. On his return to London, he plunged back into his habitual search for new experiences— a paradox, of course, which entirely escaped him. He got into violent arguments at his club, ran from theatre to opera, tried learning yet another musical instrument, poured over maps in search of a new continent, played with the idea of going to France with a notebook and a keenly perceptive eye, and spent a good deal of time trying to draw K into his peculiar gallery of overstimulation. K found Jonathan's company both exciting and unsettling, but she was distracted by herself. She was undergoing a phase in emotional recovery which could be termed perceptive paranoia. Having had her secret trauma so recently and dramatically exposed, she began to wonder about the number of people in the world with similar secrets. I appeared as normal for, for so many years, she thought. I was criticized as flighty, nervous, and confused, yet 
I was really desperately afraid, and with good reason. How many people are like me? How much of society is really constructed around the need to keep these secrets? Walking through London, she saw furtive, flushed children keeping close to their tight-lipped mothers, and her heart ached. A twitchy man approached her one morning, begging for money, his eyes wide and fearful. And she suddenly thought, Veteran! And it dawned on her that there is a secret war in society, a war against the helpless. It is waged in homes and businesses, governments and clubs. The helpless are children, workers, soldiers, peasants, husbands, wives, all who find themselves dependent on cruel power. The tense polarity of unequal relationships creates a dense whirlpool of compliance, resentment, control, defiance, violence, rage, fear, and horror. A child is delivered into the hands of her mother, realized Kay, and often a separate world is created, a world far from the norms of society, a little prison of sick secrecy, a dank hole of endless, stealthy destruction. When she read the newspaper, walked the streets, talked with people, wherever she looked, this secret seemed to be spilling from secret holes. She began to see veterans everywhere. The harsh noise of society, the racing evasion and silent desperation all seemed like the distant rumblings of hidden trenches. Trenches where the helpless lay trembling before the trundling monoliths of cold, hard hearts. Kay had spent 26 years of her life in combat. She had learned all the habits of predators. Her senses had been strained almost to the breaking point trying to map the cause and effect of trapped violence. A lamb caged with a lion learns a lot about lions. That knowledge lies buried until a safer time. When it comes out, it comes with such a sudden rush that the whole world seems to squeeze and distort itself into a wholly different shape. The accepted antonyms of truth, I caused my horror, I was wrong, I provoked, I am a coward, my mother is good, I cannot influence others, I am insignificant, I cannot give pleasure, I cannot be loved. These Beaten cries of a broken soul become the elemental religion of the victims of violence. If overturned, the resulting crisis of identity is far greater than the loss of religious faith, for our parents are always closer to us than our gods. The soul becomes shattered in two, the one which knows the horror of violence and the one which cannot allow itself to know the reality of its world. This division sets the self at war with itself, 
the uncertainties, confused passions, the savage combination of wild noise and dismal silence are all symptoms of the veteran, the survivor of war who knows no end to war, no armistice but blind hope. Kay had an odd, powerful dream one night. She seemed to be floating in a distant, insubstantial realm, a blur of possible life, jostling in a crowded room of potential souls. A tall, dark-cloaked figure called the souls one by one and offered them a life, presenting each of them with a book. Kay drifted through the emptiness, trying to peek at the book, but all the pages were blank. Finally, her name was called, and the dark figure asked her if she wanted her coming life. She asked, what would it be like? The figure presented her with a book. This only goes to age 18, it said. You must make your decision based on that. Kay opened the book eagerly and Visions seemed to spring into her mind from the blank pages. She felt herself, pink and kicking on a change table, saw a woman leaning over her and shouting, Be still! Be still! The woman cried out, exasperated at Kay's struggles, and struck her violently on the face several times. The scene faded, and another came. Kay on the change table some time later. She no longer moved. She lay frozen, silent, watching her mother's hands intently. Another view. Kay, as a toddler, her mother trying to dress her. Kay went limp, watching her mother's hands. Her mother cried out at her passivity and struck her again. Older now, some change had occurred. She no longer was herself, but watched herself, as if floating some distance from her helpless flesh. She saw herself in an enormous bedroom, packing some biscuits in a little bag, sniffling, desperate. She followed herself as she crept down the stairs towards the front door. Her view leapt suddenly to the top of the stairs as her mother came thundering down. Ungrateful child! screamed her mother, descending on the little girl like a whirlwind, her hands striking, blurring like the wings of a hummingbird. Kay felt the sick desperation as she saw herself fall back against the front door, the door to freedom, not even raising her hands to protect herself, falling behind the towering fury of her mother's back. Then, a period of strange calm, Kay saw herself at a party of her mother's, laughing with an oddly tense face, desperate to please, following her mother, clutching at her skirts, being snapped at, her hands constantly torn from her mother's flowing dress. She watched herself drift silently into a corner, standing, her hands folded over her stomach, 
staring at the wild hilarity of the party, at her turbulent father driving jokes into his guests like spikes. Older again, in her dream, the visions had begun to take on a tired, dusty quality, a squeezing sense of slow demise. She saw herself as a young girl, trailing her brother without hope, swallowing his abrupt rejections without complaint, a fixed smile on her face. More and more she heard the sandpaper scraping of turning pages. The dark figure loomed above her, watching silently. Kay wandered through the wilderness of puberty and adolescence, a quiet, lost habit of solitude, friendless, humiliated, a begging wraith of fearful need. She saw herself in a library, staring at textbooks, the words flowing and fading over the page, a sense of eternal falling gripping her, a trembling on the brink of the eternal demise of the unloved. Teachers railed against her, scathing her lack of concentration, her lack of effort, her lack of results. She felt a strange, drained exhaustion, the fidgety evasion of those who feel too much, whose burden is too heavy. As she aged, she seemed to drift further and further away from the view of herself. At her first ball in late adolescence, Kay saw herself at such a great distance that she almost couldn't make out her own features. Boys ignored her. Friends met each other, passing her by as if she was some sort of cracked ornament. Kay saw herself watching the giddy pleasures of others, a distant smile on her face. Then, just as suddenly as it had begun, the book slammed shut. You can know no more, intoned the dark figure, waving a finger. This is to be your life. Will you take it? In her dream, Kay shuddered and wept. No, 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 she cried in a formless voice. I cannot accept such awful hospitality. You will get no other chance, said the figure. Do you still refuse life? Without hesitation, Kay nodded. The figure lifted its hand, and Kay felt her soul trembling on the edge of annihilation staring at a bottomless pit of nothingness, and then her soul pitched itself forward with a sigh of blessed relief. Kay had woken suddenly, her cheeks wet with tears. I am not sentenced to live, she thought, the heels of her hands pressed to her eyes. No matter what my pain, I always have recourse to the blessed nurse of nothingness. With that thought, 
something she had always perceived as solid within her, a dark bedrock of pain, seemed to give way, and she saw at once the panic of annihilation that had always been her core. I did not want to live, she realized with the sudden clarity of pure insight. I did not want to live, yet I never allowed myself to think of death. It was a hard, harsh night. When true despair first surfaces, it is a combat that knows no bounds. We always face two enemies, the dangers of external life and the threat of internal despair. Of the two, the latter is by far the most dangerous. We can avoid lightning and rock slides, but knives are always within easy reach. Kay did not actively think of suicide. Her will to live was extraordinarily strong, but with a true knowledge of lions comes the true knowledge of lambs, and she wept and wailed for the loss of innocence, of love, of the certain pleasures of a serene life. By the time morning began sending whispers of light into the depths of her dark dialogue, the danger had begun to recede. Kay rose from her bed and washed her face, feeling a sense of peace for the first time in her life. My soul has hope, she thought over and over. Raising her head, she stared at her red eyes in the mirror. I salute you, she said softly, raising an imaginary glass to her younger self. Jonathan called on her at eleven. Come, pretty missy, he cried, bounding into her hotel room like a spring puppy. We can't waste such a lovely day in our little rooms. Hello, Jonathan, she said softly, rising to kiss his cheek. Aren't we cheery this morning, he exclaimed, touching his cheek. What happened? You know, I had the strangest dream. Ah, he grinned. Don't dream, live! Kay smiled. I intend to. Where are we lunching? I thought at Duke's. New pâté, you see. They went for lunch. Jonathan recognized a change in Kay. He talked a great deal past it, as it were, and it wasn't until dessert that she broached what was on her mind. Tell me, darling, what do you plan to do with your life? she asked. I like the way you say that, smiled Jonathan, digging into his trifle. I like saying it, she replied. Does my question make you uncomfortable? What question? Your purpose in life. It seems like an odd topic for lunch admitted Jonathan. Well, (laughs) it's not on the menu, but it's on my mind, she said. You know, 
I respect you a great deal. Your humor, courage, and intelligence, they are all wonderful qualities. Oh, this in preparation for the great but, said Jonathan mournfully. Not but, more yet, said Kay. Coffee? Jonathan pushed his cup forward. Always, he said. Kay poured him some from the pot the waiter had left at her request. Tell me, where do you see yourself in five years? she asked. With you, of course, darling, he said, taking a sip. Ooh, hot. <sighs> Good. Any rumblings from the maternal volcano? No, she said calmly. You know, you are going to great lengths to avoid answering my question. Jonathan groaned. Oh, well, he said, it's just that I had hoped you would be the one person I could rely on to leave my future in peace. You know, she said suddenly, I don't even know how old you are. Twenty-eight, he said, just. When was your birthday? Five months ago. Not just, then. Happy birthday. Thanks. When's yours? Not till summer. I'll be waiting. Thank you. Five years? No, twenty-eight grinned Jonathan. Kay sighed. Ah, I should have bought my dental pliers. Oh, don't be annoyed, he said, waving his hand. All right, what am I going to do with my life? The question, as it stands, seems silly because it implies that life is a kind of thing that must be manipulated, like, like some kind of tool. What am I going to do with my life? Why, live! That's my plan, if you can call it that. Living for the future always means... Losing the present, that's the truth. But your talents are so singular, you should do something with them. My talents, as you call them, are not pets to be taught tricks. You want me to put them on display, I assume, so others can applaud them. But I think that true success is enjoying yourself, not pleasing others. He smiled winningly, except pleasing you, of course, darling. Hedonism, in other words, Jonathan frowned. That word has such a negative sound. It's all these pathetic ascetics who couldn't feel pleasure if it would save their souls. They set up this idea that goodness is whatever makes you miserable. Ugh, it's ridiculous. They have a talent for misery, so they try to make it a universal good. It's a philosophy of wet blankets. Oh, son, they warn, beware of the road of pleasure. It is the easy road, the slack road, the road to misery. Pfft. They think having fun is easy. Pfft. I'd like to see them try it. They'd know better. Pleasure is hard. I'm having a hard time following your thoughts. Jonathan smiled smugly. Well, they are quite radical. What would you do without your inheritance? I'd be an actor. No, a traveling musician or a sailor, though the senseless discipline would be hateful. But at least I'd get a chance to explore. What about your investments? What about them? They pay the bills. You manage them yourself? Sometimes. It's fun, like... Gambling, but more respectable. Have you ever thought of doing it full-time? Doing it full-time? Ever notice how close that is to doing time, he commented. If it's enjoyable, it, it could be something you would enjoy doing more. Jonathan paused, then shook his head. I enjoy it precisely because I don't have to do it full-time. Tell me, Kay, what's bothering you? Are you afraid that if we get married, I'll just sit around the house tripping up the children? Afraid of me getting accidentally reupholstered? That won't happen. I'm always busy. No, you're not, said Kay gently. What? cried Jonathan. You're mad. I should show you my calendar. You're always doing something, that's true. You're always active. 
but it's always on your terms. No one ever has the right to demand anything from you. Not true, he grinned. Demand a kiss. Go on, I dare you. Oh, my, but that trifle was good. And now it's gone. <laughs> How philosophical. Children will be demanding, said Kay, ignoring his comment. They will not fit your schedule. Why not? he asked innocently. I do things children love to do. They'll trail me like ducklings. What about when they are ill? demanded Kay. What about when they need help with their homework? What about when they have problems? Will you solve every difficulty by force-feeding them excitement? Well, that's a bit much, he said shortly. I'm not that irresponsible. What about me? she asked with a sudden flash of fear. I, I will not always be merry. I will cheer you up. Don't you see? she cried. You just want to placate everyone. Everything you do is just for yourself. Everything which doesn't fit what you want has to be fixed, controlled, gotten rid of. Kay is sad. Why? Just cheer her up. Why are you Why are you getting so angry? he cried. We're just having lunch. I'm concerned about you. That's not true. I helped you, out of goodwill and love. And now you turn around and say, everything about you must change. You came with me for who I was. I was not false. Now you want something different. By heavens, I thought shrews waited until after marriage to reveal their true colors. Kay's face went white. Is that how you see me? That's how you are showing yourself. More than a bit of your mother in you isn't there. Kay threw down her napkin and got up. You helped me. That's true, and I will be eternally grateful to you for that. But if it's all one-sided, we can never be together. Kay, Kay. I'm sorry, please. Sit down. I'm not mad at you. Everyone just seems to want me to be something different, and I'm a little tired of it. I'm happy. I enjoy my life. If that's not enough for you, I never will be. Go for a job interview, said Kay, still standing. Jonathan's eyes widened. Uh, 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 what? You heard me. But I have enough money. Fortunately for you. Kay stared at him for a moment in shock. Then it was all about saving me, wasn't it? She whispered. No, no, I... I loved you for accepting me. Don't turn into everyone else, please. Anyone who finds fault with you is the enemy, aren't they? Well, Jonathan Edsworth, that just isn't true. If you want to live your life entirely for yourself, don't get involved with anyone who cares about you. Don't listen to anyone. End up alone. Right, always right, but alone. Perhaps that's just what I'll have to do, he said. If you change your mind, you know where to find me, said Kay, turning and walking out. Damn it, thought Jonathan dismally. Why does everyone turn against me? Jonathan, said a voice behind him. He turned and saw Lydia. Hello, he said glumly. What are you doing here? Meeting Lawrence for lunch. I'm a little early. How is the great man? He asked. She smiled. Wonderful. Will you sit for a few minutes? he said, offering her a chair. Of course, she said, sitting. Is this coffee still warm? Help yourself. Jonathan paused for a moment. <sighs> Tell me something, Lydia. As a friend. Have I ever told you anything as an enemy? she asked, pouring herself a cup. Don't be glib. 
This is hard. Really? <laughs> then I must be at the wrong table. Oh, be quiet and listen. Tell me. Is there anything about Lawrence that you would change if you could? Lydia smiled. Fight with Kay? Jonathan sighed. Just answer the question, please. Of course I would change some things. I already have. What? You know, that business with Mary. I, I never could understand his attachment to her. So much guilt and pressure. It seemed quite unhealthy. But by plying him with love and goodness, I think I have freed him. You understand this is strictly confidential. Ugh, why do I say that? You tell everything to everyone. Jonathan blinked. Have I offended existence in some way? What did Kay want you to change? She said, I have no purpose in life. No, that's not quite fair. She asked me what I wanted to do with my life. I got quite irritable. Don't give me that look. Two opinions do not make an absolute. Lydia pursed her lips. Of course, only two. All right. Would you have taken Kay as she was when you met her? Ooh, what would that mother? Jonathan shuddered. You must be mad. So you wanted to change something in her. I helped her. I didn't want to change her. Oh, by heavens, I had almost forgotten how maddening you are to talk to. Why do you say that? I love you dearly, Jonathan, but you have an irritating habit common to all who think they are always in the right. You love giving advice, but hate taking it. That's not true, you see? <sighs> but what advice did Kay give you? She told me to get a job interview at a bank, managing investments. Ha! <laughs> Blasphemer! What? You don't find that shocking? Jonathan, everyone has a purpose except you. Doesn't that ever give you pause? He racked his brain trying to think of a contrary example. Listen, said Lydia reasonably, I no longer have the same passion to change you. Do what you want with your life, but spare a thought to some of the responsibilities that none of us can ever escape if we want to live fully. Family, career, love purpose. These things always require some planning, some sacrifice. I know, I know, said Jonathan miserably. I don't know why I hate the idea so much. I don't either, but, but something in you drew you to Kay. I think it's a good match. She has a depth of experience you lack, a knowledge of suffering and, and sacrifice. If you want her, you have to want all of her, not, not just the parts that fit your preferences. So you think I should go for a job interview, he said with horror. Why not? Where? My father's banking at a new institution, one focusing heavily on investments. There is a very unusual banker there, according to my father. Here's the address, she said, passing a card to him. I'm going there tomorrow to talk about moving my accounts. Meet me there at eleven. I'll wait and help you recover. Well, I suppose she only asked that I go for an interview, said Jonathan, suddenly brightening. Not that I actually get the job. Spoken like a truly changed man, smiled Lydia. Chapter 53 Three Choices the villagers met with all the passion of participatory politics. Ever since the death of John Mudder, the village had been without a mayor. 
Flushed with new wealth, the position had languished, vacant, for over a month. Finally, Father Jones had called a meeting to elect a new mayor, offering himself as a candidate. To everyone's surprise, knotted Bob also came forward as a nominee. Since his retirement to his little cottage, he had almost completely dropped out of village life. A few comments were made about the failure of age to recognize its limitations, for knotted Bob was still perceived as a figure of odd ridicule, yet some of the older men, who still recalled the wisdom of his nature, quietly applauded his choice. There was one other candidate, included more for entertainment value than serious politics, the ex-monk barkeep and master of the blasphemous mass, Garth, also put his name on the ballot. An issue had arisen which was expected to be the centre of the coming debate. The farmers all paid a fixed percentage of their income to the village council. The council used this money for general purposes, the repairing of roads, education, poor relief, and so on. Due to the astounding increase in crop production caused by Lawrence's reforms, the council found itself sitting on an unprecedented mass of money and crops. The question remained unresolved as to what to do with this wealth. The debate took place on a patron saint's day. No one had to work, and chairs were brought to the village square so everyone could come, watch, and have their say. The village election was considered a great treat, a time when the clash of hoary opinions and old grudges usually made for a great show. The morning of the debate rose clear and slightly chilly. In the early hours, the breath of those setting up the chairs and refreshments was clearly visible. By mid-morning, however, when the villagers began taking their places, the day had become comfortably warm. Bailiff Andrews dragged out the podium he had used for the trial of Farmer Jigger and set it up in the centre of the square. Several villagers glanced at it with a shiver of unease. The debate being considered vaguely in the realm of legality, Bailiff Andrews was the moderator. The debate began at noon. Father Jones was the first speaker. The square was quite full, though many older men had obviously decided that more wisdom was to be had from another glass of beer than the words of the village priest. "'Friends!' he cried after Bailiff Andrew had settled the crowd with several bangs of his gavel. "'Friends, we come together on this beautiful day for the sake of good Christian charity. The good Lord has seen it fit this year to provide us with a wondrous bounty.' "'Which Lord is that?' cried Garth to General Merriment. "'Silence!' cried Bailiff Andrews. "'Thank you, good Bailiff,' said Father Jones gratefully, turning to the laughing crowd. "'We have a wondrous beauty in our hands, good citizens, and we must decide what to do with it. Many suggestions have been bandied about, some serious, some the mere ramblings of fools,' he said, glancing significantly at Garth, who mimed putting on a clerical collar and then yanked it up behind him like a noose. My humble suggestion, as you know, continued the priest, is the setting up of a poorhouse. This idea, more common to city than country, is to have a place of refuge for the poor, a place where they can rest their weary bones, be put to good use, and be instructed in the ways of the Lord. This, of course, is the purpose of our lives, the saving of souls, 
not the stuffing of bellies. I know that my esteemed opponent, nodded Bob, has made the suggestion of applying this bounty to further crop improvements, but I respectfully call his perspective utterly blasphemous. Yes, harsh words, my friend, but true to the will of God. Remember, brothers, that God has loosed us on this world only temporarily. He does not weigh our bodies, only our actions. To be sure, we can run after more wealth. God grants us the freedom to make evil decisions. He grants us the freedom to become fat and complacent. Or we may use his freedom to help those of our brethren who have turned from the road to heaven. What is all the wealth in the world next to the salvation of a single soul? We have a chance to aid in the salvation of the worst poverty, the poverty of the godless, whose only reward for their wicked ways is in eternity in the agonies of hell. Do we need more food? No. Do we need more factories, more angry workers disrupting our town? No. Let us reform the workers we have before bringing more upon us. No more factories. Why do we need more wool? Why do we need more crops? What matters, friends, is the saving of souls from the claws of Satan, cried Father Jones, crossing himself piously. Help me out in our common task. Help me save the godless. Give me the power, and I will use it for God's purpose. Thank you, Father Jones, said Bailiff Andrews. We will now hear from Knotted Bob. Silence greeted the rise of Knotted Bob, not only from respect, but also because everyone was fascinated by the creaking sound he made when he moved. Aye, we have a bounty, said Knotted Bob, taking the podium and squinting over the crowd. We have a bounty, and we have a choice. In this, the head of the priest is on a nail. He scratched his head. The crowd listened breathlessly. "'I think him too heavy for the podium, it creaks so,' cried Garth. "'Wait your turn, fool,' scowled Bailiff Andrews. "'Don't we always?' grinned Garth. "'Yeah, it never comes.' Knotted Bob shook his head slowly. "'This faith in poor houses is wide of the mark, wide of the mark, I say. "'A man can be mean for many reasons, not least for want of bread.' I spy faces here old enough to remember how this village was ten year ago. A deep hole of hunger, sickness, neighbour against neighbour, father against son. Not for more food, but any food. Do you recall? Aye. I see by your faces that the evils of those times are not quite dry in your minds. Now we have a different life. Strength and goodness is back in our bones. Is that a cause of God? Perhaps, but I have no faith in that goodness. I have faith in food. Food gave us goodness. Now the priest says, turn your backs on your crops and look to the poor. Aye, and he's right. The poor are still with us, and always will be, I spy, as long as the world sits under sun and moon. So now we ask ourselves, what are we to do with them? We can give them food and have less for ourselves, or we can give them work and have more for everyone. I say, let's use this money to buy more land, more manure, more seedlings. Then, when the pork come to us, we can give them a hoe, 
Not just a leaky roof and pious lectures. Is there any man here who prefers kind charity to hard work? Nay, I say we be forged to sterner stuff. The only right kindness in this world is opportunity, not charity. The priest wants a poor ass. Let us lift the rocks of his kind words and peer beneath them. Heirs work ours. Ours of God? Aye, perhaps. Ours of work? For certain. The poor will labour in his little house. And where do ye spy the fruits of their labour going? Roman bought a little. Back to the church? A lot. He can speak of souls until we all give ours up. But the truth is that he stands to fatten his purse from his charity and none the richer but him. Put me in the seat of mayor and I will use this money to enrich us all, to make good men from the poorest of the poor. Put him there and none will escape the better but him. The villagers scratched their heads and conferred. The problem of the poor had been on everyone's mind, and not just because of the factory workers. Homeless people, hearing of the sudden wealth of the village and the loom factory, had begun making their way into the county, begging for work. Since the harvest was in, they found none. Fearful of drawing more poor through generosity, the villagers had provided little charity. Finding that this resulted in brazen theft, the question of the poor had become quite pressing. Garth, said Bailiff Andrews disdainfully. Aye, good humour will have its say, grinned Garth, rising and bowing deeply. Arkin, ye scurvy rabble, the fool speaks. Having nothing to gain but a short stretch of hearing, he speaks only nonsense. We have heard from two worthy gentlemen about our best to manage the fruits of your hard labour. Now, never having partaken of hard labour myself... I can only imagine what you feel on hearing how they plan to carve it up. But I think that if there were an excess of jokes in the world, and I was listening to two such kind souls talk about how to tell them for me, I can only think that this was just another kind of joke. Blessed with the glorious weight of self-importance, they cry, what are we to do with the poor? Well, we have enough food, so there's no point eating them. They're quite stringy anyway, are you? One says, save their souls by putting them to work which sounds like a curse on our noble lords, who work not at all, and thus must be going straight to hell. The other says, Save their souls by preaching at them, as if he could not ramble the roads of our good lands and find poor enough to preach at, and so obviously prefers having them come to him, than taking the effort to hunt down such rare creatures. Now, the fool has a minute more, and he says that if he were mayor, he would at least know that he is such a fool that he has no business meddling in what is and is. He would say, the fools of the world demand good roads and teachers for their children very well. Let them have them, so they can stay home and put hoes into their children's well-schooled ends. <laughs> but that takes so little. Even a fool can see that the mayor should lower your taxes rather than worry his head about what to do with his sudden windfall. What should we do with the money? <laughs> Why give it back to you and let you do what you please with it? Fools cannot decide for fools. This fool has spoken the only sense he will ever dare and will retire once more to his proper station. Garth sat down. The crowd stared at him in shock. The option of lowering taxes had not even occurred to them. Dazed, they shook their heads, thinking, what a strange notion. 
The strangeness was the only argument they needed. They laughed and shook their heads, amused by the cunning jest, and many vowed to stand him a drink. The ballots were handed out, marked, and returned. Everyone retired to the tavern to drink and await the results. Bailiff Andrews sat in the square with Father Jones and knotted Bob. Garth had gone to the inn, counting silently. He checked the results three times, then glanced up impassively. Come on, he said, leading the two men towards the tavern. When they opened the door, the room fell silent. Glasses lowered, beards were wiped, and all eyes were on the bailiff. Knotted Bob is our new mayor, he cried. The room erupted into a chaos of cheers. Knotted Bob grinned at the stricken priest. Welcome to the new world, priest, he cried triumphantly. Father Jones glared at him in helpless rage, then turned and forced his way through the crowd and out of the tavern. Knotted Bob saluted his departure, then turned and surrendered to the handshakes and offered drinks. Chapter 54 A Confused Interview Jonathan hoped he would not be seen. His eyes darted from left to right as he scuttled from doorway to doorway. Naturally, his demeanour drew all eyes to him. People shied away from him as if he held a bomb or radical opinions under his neatly pressed velvet suit. An amateur spy always hides conspicuously. Even if he had run into a pack of his closest acquaintances, however, they would have been hard-pressed to identify him. His hair, normally waging a losing battle against gravity and static, was oiled, scented and tied back in a smooth ponytail. His fashionable scruffiness was completely gone. He had risen early, gone to a barber far in the East End, paid excessively for a close shave and neat trim, and returned to the financial district by back alleys stopping only in a dank tavern to apply a good base to his face. Jonathan carried his resume in a small leather folder. He had spent a lot of time in the morning worrying over how best to transport and produce a single page without wrinkling it. Preparing a resume is one of the few events in life that raises one's perspective from the minute to the suborbital. There are Others, those born more than midway through a century, pass idle moments of childhood and youth, imagining their lives on the night of the great turnover. I will be thirty-four on that day. Surely I shall never be so old. Yet that night comes, as all nights do, even the final one, and it is a powerful marker. The two new zeros line up against the flow and direction of their lives like two holes of a shotgun. Jonathan was still some years shy of a new century, so struggling against the blank page of a resume was the closest thing he had ever come to an honest adult self-assessment. I graduated from university six years ago. Ugh, it was like the ghastly exercises in sterile creativity inflicted on young boys. What I did with my summer holidays. The hardest acts of creativity are reserved for retroactive imagination. Filling in timesheets, taxes, extricating from lies, scant resumes. 
My experiences are so rich, thought Jonathan, but my history so poor. Of course, if Jonathan actually wanted the job, the creation of the resume would have been all the more difficult. He did not want to make it too impressive, yet he knew Kay would want to see a copy, so it had to balance. As he scurried, a tense little ball of frustration welled up within him. What on earth am I doing trying to please people like this? Like most people who have never received clear instructions on how to live, he had entered an amoral phase in puberty, then a hedonistic phase, and now was entering into a necessary but belated phase of trying to bring a life into existence whose construction required more thought than passion. Naturally, he was afraid of turning to his father for advice. His father did not give advice, only orders. Responsibility was the grim governess of his childhood. His father had been blind to what made Jonathan tick, so they had set up the oldest standoff of human interaction, shouting absolutes across a canyon of incomprehension, able neither to leave the chasm nor bridge it. Oddly enough, though, on meeting Kay, he had, for the first time, come across something he wanted beyond the animal impulse of the initial grab. You shall find love in Dorset, he had said to Lydia, and now shook his head at the prophecy. Ah, there was something about her tenderness, her need. Even to go through the motion of looking for a job is rank capitulation, he smiled, feeling an elemental thrill at the depth of his surrender. Oh, fight as I might, I am thoroughly doomed. In his leather folder, his little document had a small number of large letters spread across its lonely face. He had struggled with it for hours, attempting to stretch his meagre experience into something resembling a respectable course of action. By the time he was done, the words seemed strangely exhausted, like travellers returning from a long, arduous and rather pointless pilgrimage. Jonathan glanced at a clock and upped his pace a little, finding new respect for the time management skills required by paranoiacs. He arrived at the Second National Chartered Bank ten minutes late and asked for Lydia's contact, Mr. Rangoon. He looked around, but Lydia was not there. The receptionist asked him three times if he had a cold before he sighed and spoke in his normal voice. She smiled at this endearing idiocy and asked him to wait. Pulling out his resume, Jonathan pretended to study it carefully, not noticing that this gave him the shady air of a man frantically trying to commit an alibi to memory before being called into a courtroom. Finding the conversations around him quite intriguing, however, he began to notice his surroundings a little more. Banks made Jonathan very nervous. His father was of the opinion that finances were not a fit topic for family discussion. And it was not only finances, it often seemed that, for Jonathan's father, any topic but the weather and political opinions of the previous century were somehow unfit. As a result, whenever Jonathan overspent his allowance, his father referred him to the family banker who had as gloomy a view of man's ability to handle capital as a Calvinist has of his ability to handle temptation. 
The banker would chew on his nails and drone on in deep, deep shock and disappointment at Jonathan's transgressions, a term which made the young man feel as if he had sinned against a flat, green god. Glancing around him, Jonathan saw similar types of men stalking the halls of the Second National Chartered Bank, men who, despite their naturally morbid inclinations, had decided against the job of undertaker because they would have found it distasteful that their clients had once been alive. These men could not farm because things grew. They could not trade because people bought and sold. They could not live a life of ease because that required pleasure. So they became bankers. For there was an occupation where the sum total of dreams, goals, loves, and hates could be neatly tabulated in a double-entry ledger. They did not see capital as a lively echo of ambition, or a trembling potential of rank luxury, or a tidy means of easing daily burdens, but as a dry, abstract monolith of dark responsibility. Some of these men had children, Jonathan was sure of that, but he also knew that they managed their children much like they managed their capital. The children had been put in their trust, and must grow through the judicious investment of cautious wisdom. Thus their children were invested with deep fear of the original sin of financial irresponsibility. Capital was not to be used, but nurtured like a grudge. Goods not required for the binding of body and soul, or the maintenance of a certain professional decorum, are blasphemously wasteful, they said. Naturally, their children grew grave and guilty in the face of such savage retention. Ooh, if I'm not careful, he thought, suppressing a shudder, I could end up working here. You're next, smiled the receptionist. Jonathan smiled back with the tense cheer of a boy unable to show his homework. Remember, you don't want this job. Deep as he was in the quiet tomb of capital, he was quite surprised to hear a raised voice from behind Mr. Rangoon's closed door. "'I will stand for no such opinions, you young rascal!' cried the voice. "'I'm not interested in your references. I will, in fact, provide you with a wonderful letter of introduction to any competitor you require, for I can imagine no better service I could do for this worthy institution than having you work for one of our rivals. Now take your pretty degrees and get out of my building!' The receptionist grinned. Best place to work, she said to Jonathan. You'll do fine, just be yourself. That is my plan. Yes, she winked, but it might not work. A pale-faced young man came out of the office clutching a resume. He stared at Jonathan, shook his head dazedly, and wandered out. Come on, then, cried the voice irritably. Jonathan picked up his resume and walked jauntily into the office. This shouldn't take too long. Mr. Rangoon was short, with lank white hair and strange spots on his skin. And Jonathan suddenly remembered an illusion he had when he was a child, that the moon was in fact the earth, and all the green maps were wrong. The earth was a sky-locked composite of silver shades. This did not lead to the next question, if the moon is the earth, where do you live, until some time later when a favorite nanny sat with him on the bed as the moonlight streamed in through the window and demonstrated to him that he did, in fact, 
live on an orange? Or was it a grape? Either way, he remembered sitting deep in the folds of manifested blankets while the solar system was spread out at his feet. The grapefruit was the sun. The moon was a grape, the earth an orange. And it had seemed to Jonathan that as he watched the orange slide into shadow, that had he sensitive enough eyes, he would be able to see himself staring up at the constellation of his own face, deep in a miniature citrus canyon. It was a joyful memory that brought him back in a flash to Mr. Rangoon, because it was rare to see such intense energy in an older man. He could see Mr. Rangoon's vitality from clear across his office, and it stopped him short. Vitality had been the central question of Jonathan's youngish life. Vitality and how to keep it. Vitality is the great unguessed gift of youth and the forgotten absence of middle age. Jonathan was horrified at how many people exchanged vitality for property. He was often decried for shying away from responsibility, but he was, he believed, very responsible towards himself. Of course, he knew he had been indulgent, but he had been aware lately of how possible it is for the greed of the infant to destroy the sensitivity of the child. The infant is little more than more, more, more sleep. And that was similar enough to certain adult pursuits that it was possible to let the infant maneuver the post-pubescent body like a drunken child in a wild crane. Ah, but sex had lost its luster to Jonathan. Not completely, of course, but something was changing even before he met Kay. He used women to conquer his impulses, to drown out the wild insistence of his inner life. Everyone who treads torrential emotions needs something which shocks the nervous system into silence, even for a short time, days, hours, minutes. That is one of the greatest tragedies of life, of course, that the most sensitive have to destroy their sensitivity, starting as silent crystals of tremulous perception They so fear being broken or overwhelmed by their perceptions that they take the wrecking balls of external stimuli on their menageries until they end up little more than insensate brutes. None scream so loud as those who cannot stop hearing. So, something deep within Jonathan stirred at the sight of Mr. Rangoon and he had all the arrogance of an inward-looking man in his late twenties, assuming that all he had mapped was all there was to map. And he blinked several times, and found himself becoming slightly liquid. So deep was his receptivity. Mr. Rangoon sat behind his desk, writing on the back of his hand. "'I am making my grocery list, young man.' he said without looking up. If you can make me forget what I want to write next, the job is yours. He glanced up suddenly. You do know what the job is, don't you? Well, loans, officer, stammered Jonathan, deeply shocked. The sight of a banker with a visible personality? Quite, said Mr. Rangoon, absently writing again. You will be responsible for the management of other people's hard-earned money, so we can assume you are not a total fool. What else can you bring me? Come, come. I don't need much. Um, 
of willingness to work hard, said Jonathan, repressing a smile. A, a, a resolute, decisive nature. Fin financial competence. I don't drink a lot. I've never been convicted for fraud. I often rise before noon. Money bores me, so I probably won't steal. Mr. Rangoon stopped writing, stared at Jonathan, then guffawed. <laughs> All right. I lost my thread on grapefruit. What on earth are you talking about? I'm listing my abilities. Give me a resume. He grabbed it and stared at it blankly. You've never worked a day in your life, he cried. Perfect. All right, Mr. Edsworth, sell me this pen. No, 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 forget that. I already like the pen. Give me some ideas. Tell me something unusual. What have you got? Jonathan smiled. Well, an uncommon aversion to hard work. Excellent. We share two traits already. Made in heaven. Excuse me? I loathe hard work. That's why my wife sees me no more than five minutes a day. Jeff Rangoon, she says, you are hugging the covers again. Do you hug the covers? Jonathan's mouth dropped open. Because that's my definition of hard work, said Mr. Rangoon, managing blankets while asleep. You are not close to your father. I... Never mind. We'll get... Are you a Protestant? No. Good. Why should our daily occupations be millstones around our neck? Do you know, I believe the Protestant heaven has punch clocks and all the saints fear unionization. Mr. Rangoon threw his head back and laughed. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm playing up my eccentricities just to get your attention. But there's truth in it, nonetheless. Let me put my psychic helmet on. You are rich, entitled in an indifferent sort of way, here because of a, a woman. Yes, I'm getting someone quite lovely, though physically... What's the longest you've ever had a hobby? Um... Jonathan was afraid to think, to, to answer, because he was certain that he was only a sort of prop for Mr. Rangoon's random inner ramblings. He paused for a few moments, then realized that the older man was looking at him expectantly, perfectly composed. Did childhood hobbies count? Yes. Finger painting was a singular passion of mine for, well, child time is uh, several months at least. Until you painted a wall, or, or a maid, your mother, or your privates, <laughs> a colourful totem pole, I'd wager. And since then, nothing has lasted so long. Lovely. Now you. What? Well, why are you here? Something is missing from your life. You don't have to work. Something tickled Jonathan's eyes. Deep where the wet balls met his earliest memories. Mr. Rangoon paused. You were emotional. Oh, it's, it's, it's so... May I? The banker passed a handkerchief to the young man. Go on. Well, nothing is missing in my life. Yes. Um, are you sure you're a banker? Sorry, that's rude. No, I'm aware of my differences. Now, tell me about yourself. Professionally? However you like. Jonathan exhaled. Oh, good, because professionally. I'm 28 years old. I, I play the stock market somewhat successfully. Oh, I met a wonderful woman. Very sensitive. I can focus myself for... Jonathan paused. His eyes were positively burning. He shook his head. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling... Sit, please. Let us imagine that we are here as friends. Friends, that's all. So I, Jeff, say to you, my friend Jonathan, what is on your mind? I don't know. You are not close to your father. You have a lot of talent. I've heard of you. There is, in fact, a small group of investors who follow your lead. You didn't know that? How many teachers said to you, if effort matched ability, you'd be an A+. Jonathan laughed ruefully. Ooh, more than a few. D differently, though. So why do you apply yourself so little? Oh, I, I hate the idea of willing everything. It's like, if you try, they win. 
Everything you set your stake on becomes a tra trap. There was a pause. Jonathan rarely listened to himself. A trap. So, let's say I like you. You, you are different, and, and I work for you. I know this has become more social than professional, but let's say it went differently, and I like working for you. I have, you have something to offer me. Then I want to please you to keep working here, and everything becomes difficult. Jonathan stood. And, and suppose that works out. Suppose I succeed here. Then it's fatherhood, tie-straightening, drinks at the club, portliness, orthodox opinions, patriotism, God help me. Everything becomes clogged. The heart softens. I don't know. I, I don't want to become anything. That's an implicit condemnation of where and who I am now. Jonathan passed a hand through his hair. Don't you have... Isn't the next person due? The signal has been given. Ah, uh, then... Mr. Rangoon leaned forward. You want to live for the moment, Mr. Edsworth, is that correct? Well, <laughs> this moment was not what I had in mind, but do you know that more than 90% of the life mass in this world is made up of insects? Uh, I did not know that. And except for some inherited actions, they have no sense of time. So I... Even plants, which are lower than insects, strain to reach the light, though it takes them years. I think enough of creation lives in the moment. You should aspire to be more than vegetation. Why? The banker smiled. It is my belief that the most powerful relationship in the world is not between parent and child, or husband and wife, given your insensitive greed for the covers. The banker smiled. Any other guesses? Creditor and debtor? The older man laughed. Then his smile dropped. <laughs> Who has guided you in your life, Jonathan? Jonathan laughed, but the shards stuck in his throat. G guided me? I, I, I'm not a sheep. Talent is very dangerous. Did you know that? Talent? I'm... No. You're not a painter or a playwright, but you have talent. The development and management of that talent is very difficult, very delicate. I could do it, but that's a little matter, because you may not be ready to admit that your soul frightens you. But it is important to know that if this talent is not given its proper direction, it will destroy you. <laughs> now that sounds melodramatic. My ability to choose stocks is not a kind of opiate. The stocks... Ah, who cares about that? You have managed your abilities by pretending there is no such thing as the future. And that is not bad. It could have been drink, drugs, women. Your future is knocking at your door incessantly. You can concentrate on nothing else. You dabble because you're afraid of finding out what you are capable of, of knowing that you will never be loved by your family who don't... Excuse me. Too far, too soon. But everyone damns the brilliant idler for his idleness, but no one takes the time to help him harness his abilities. Jonathan drew a deep breath. Because if you're that brilliant, Mr. Ragoon clapped his hands. You're supposed to know how to do it yourself. Absolutely. And it would take someone who has actually done it themselves. Meaning you. And you'll kindly notice that we are over the hurdle of whether or not you have talent. Do, do you give the speech to everyone who comes in here? Mr. Ragoon stood. Get up. Jonathan felt his stomach drop. I, I didn't mean the older man waved his hand. God, I'm not offended. You've listened extraordinarily well, and I thank you for it. Come here. Mr. Rangoon opened the door, and they left his office. Several men were sitting in the receptionist's area. The banker rubbed his chin vigorously, staring at them. You, leave. Go be a florist. You, 
And you... tellers, perhaps. No? You can stay, he said, pointing at a young man. We'll be back soon. Mr. Rangoon opened another door, and they went through and stood on a small catwalk over a wide swath of mahogany desks, where dark-suited clerks with oiled hair toiled in respectful silence. A few glanced up and bent deeper over their tasks, writing furiously. "'Do you know that the average person farts about once an hour?' murmured Mr. Rangoon. "'At any society ball, that means that all these well-dressed men and women who grin and sashay and tell dry jokes are producing several hundred cubic feet of farts between the announcement of their entrance and their burping swagger to their carriages. <laughs> "'Thought I was the only one, don't we all? "'There are also these spontaneous erections, but the point is that the real work of the body continues.' Regardless of the appearances we may prefer as important, this is not the real bank. Jonathan watched the clerks, acutely aware of Mr. Rangoon watching him. Enter the mystery, said the older man, pulling his sleeve. They walked down the stairs and through the hall to a smaller door at the rear. You are one of the first titled sons of the realm to enter here, he said, pushing open the rear door. You will be known as the old man here. Don't even ask what they call me. Jonathan had seen professional workplaces before. Of course, banks were the most common. He had many memories of learning the strength and taste of a copper penny his father would give to him while the elder Edsworth went in to talk to Mr. Stelson and take back afterwards. Because Jonathan had always been exquisitely sensitive to his surroundings, he had been charged with life at a theatre cruel at the dentist's, quiet at funerals, and always sleepy and dangerous in an office. Sometimes he would go up with his father to the second floor of the bank and see the young men with young-looking, old-hoping mustaches and think that the ones who shuffled, sloped-shouldered and always stood and talked through their noses in one note were afraid. And those who were square-shouldered and brusque and impatient and did not pause when speaking blindly were also afraid. And he wondered who it was who created such fear. Lost in the mineral taste of his copper penny, he imagined a huge grey octopus in a double-breasted suit and a gold watch on each tentacle, telling the time in different cities, who presided over his clerks. And at the end of the day's business would feel each one's face with the slithery rubber of its suction cups, and sense those who had made mistakes. And then the huge octopus would pull the erring clerks close to its oily, heaving bosom, tilt them forward, and a grey tongue would roll forward from the enormous parrot beak and lick the hair oil from their heads before biting them off to the dutiful applause of the unchosen. Of course, Jonathan would generally scream when his father tapped him on the shoulder to go, and he would look up into the fearful, superstitious eyes of a plodding parent regarding a hypersensitive child. So when Mr. Rangoon opened the door, Jonathan was quite unprepared for the sight which met his eyes. It was a low-ceilinged room with desks and books scattered haphazardly about. Men gathered in clusters. There was a great wild carelessness in the room, where before there had been fear, now there seemed anger and humor. Jonathan was transfixed. 
Mr. Rangoon glanced at him and smiled. So the interview is over. Yet, let me continue, if only because I told the other applicants they would have to wait. This is the loans room, also dubbed the Shift of Fools, as well as the C-squared, or the capital of capital. And I will tell you something very interesting. This room is exactly the same as the room we just came from, but this one faces forward instead of backwards. Boys! he shouted suddenly, startling Jonathan. Boys, who do we hate? The men cried back without raising their heads. Pascal! Who is the enemy? Kepler! Who do we live for? He who is yet to be. (laughs) You see, said Mr. Rangoon, turning to Jonathan. Of course, you you don't allow loan decisions to be made by fiery religious visions. Actually, quite the opposite. It's the damn calculus we hate. Allow me to lecture. Oh, it's so rare. You understand insurance? Sure. Sleep for the meek. Mr. Rangoon laughed. (laughs) Yes, perhaps. Insurance as a whole is made possible by the laws of probability, courtesy of one Blaise Pascal, and life insurance by the new Census Bureau. Once you know the average lifespan and the laws of probability, accurate insurance becomes possible. This is also true for maritime insurance. You don't think that all this new trade by sea has come about just because we've become better sailors, do you? No, we simply know the odds of a ship making it back from the Cape of Good Hope, or as we like to call it, the Cape of Good Math. And that's what the young duds in the front office do. And as soon as we can invent an abacus with its own hands, I can happily turn them all into fertilizer. Those are the young duds, and these are the young studs. Probability is empirical, and so faces only the past. What we explore here is not the probable, but the possible, where no math dare venture. Jonathan shook his head. So, what is your, 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 your way? Hard to even describe, isn't it? There are, I believe, instincts which arise from the past, which are essentially conservative and self-protective, and assume that what is to come will be more or less the same as what is past. There is another more subtle set of instincts which anticipate the future and can do serious damage to an old-fashioned sense of time. Prophecy? No, in that nothing can really be foreordained, but the kind of instincts which go to the root of new people we meet or or can tell a person is about to become ill by his handshake. Well, there's no need for a chasm of detail, but we believe here that there are new economic forces afoot, forces which in math can be represented only by X, and an asymptote of profit, I hope, and which rational analysis can only approximate. The rest of it I turn over to, Jonathan leapt forward, feeling. You are mad. This is as yet only a small division, and you are quite right. I am mad, but it's a happy kind of mad. Our shareholders know nothing about this, but the dud room outside is a sham, like a woman with downcast eyes who tears your back to shreds on your wedding night. These studs are my insurance. And... How have you been doing? Well, (laughs) badly, but never boringly. Instinct is hard, hard. But enough about us. Let's talk about you. Now, here you might rightly think I stop lecturing you and you finally get to speak, but you are to be disappointed for the lecture continues, though with a shift in subject. Jonathan tugged at his tie. Can we go back to your office? It's quite hot in here. Back in the office, Mr. Rangoon continued. You are without a home in this rational age, because your syllogisms are invisible to you. There is poetry in business, and a poet's effectiveness cannot be proved by any of Aristotle's famous 196 syllogisms. You are passionate but rudderless, libidinous but unsatisfied, curious and restless. Each day is passed in pleasure. Contemplation of the year is fraught with tension, because you have no idea who you are or where you are going. You numb yourself with random change because your impulses are almost overwhelming. You still cry at sad songs and feel lonely in the presence of others. You sucked your thumb until you entered puberty. 
You cannot imagine old age. You don't want to waste your life, but feel that you are losing some intangible value. A little more each day. Jonathan stared at him. Don't cry. Don't cry. So what can you do? Why work here? You do not have to work, and being minorly titled, you would face shame and ridicule for so doing. I am, in a way you do not understand as yet, offering you a new type of family. Why overthrow everything you have known for something new? Well, I have the greatest respect for your talents, and I can teach you how to harness them, use them to flex your power, to use muscles that at the moment are using you. You have no choice about your talents. They are here in your blood, and they will destroy you if left unharnessed. I can teach you to be yourself, because who you are comes from the future, and so cannot be learned empirically from the past. Mr. Rangoon settled back in his chair, sweating. Now I am done. Would you like some water? Jonathan tried to swallow. Yes. A woman's hand passed it to him suspiciously quickly, and he handed it to Jonathan. Power looms, whispered the young man. Mr. Rangoon leaned forward. Yes? That's what's needed here. Tell me more. And so they talked about power looms, and Jonathan racked his brain for any figures he might have heard from Adam or Lawrence, but Mr. Rangoon waved them away as inconsequential, and they continued for almost an hour. Finally, Mr. Rangoon stopped Jonathan in mid-sentence. You have a headache coming, and, and, and that's not what I want you to recall from our first meeting. Of course, the job is yours if you want it, and naturally you will have to talk it over with your family, but come back Monday either way and, and let me know. Jonathan stood and bowed, feeling absurd. As he turned to go, he couldn't resist the temptation. How, how did you know so much about me? he asked. Is that some of what you teach? No, that's the speech I give everyone I like. Jonathan's face fell. But only those who respond to it work out well here. That's the kind of skill I can teach you. Nothing false in it. Jonathan wandered back to his hotel in the days of the newly discovered. There was an image of fire in his mind. The discovery of fire all the way to the current matches and gas lamps. That, he thought, is the journey of every untutored creative soul. Invent knowledge, invent self-management, focus the right combination of discipline and listening, the relation between external impulse and internal sensation. Too much to learn, too much. How many fall by the wayside? It's like being lost in the woods and having to learn which animals to fear and which berries are edible. So few would survive, and those who did would think it more talent than luck and would die with the random fortune of their knowledge. As he wandered through the busy streets, Jonathan also remembered his grandmother, a woman he hadn't thought of in years, who was small and Nice, and had been widowed so long that it came as no surprise that her late husband's name had been Adam. Oh, she would sit and make him write thank-you letters to people he did not know, and give him a mottled penny. She did not trust any pennies forged after Adam's death for church collections, 
and whose nature was so essentially sweet that she was like a statue of sugar under a rain of years, dripping into the earth. Jonathan often wondered why she had absolutely nothing to teach him, and how she was so completely certain in the face of his turbulent disagreements. I never cried at her funeral, he thought. He had an impatient and bossy older sister who always complained that he never talked to her, then cut off all his replies. She was currently breeding mini Viscounts in Calais, and they caught up depressingly quickly every Christmas. There were others, general flesh-and-blood orbits, who never made the connection of mind. And Jonathan's childhood had been a long wait, a kind of numbness which erupted into random action when he was twelve and read Moll Flanders and realized that there was a kind of knowledge that his family knew nothing about. A frenzy slapped his mind awake and he flew through his teens and early twenties like a wild comet of insensate greed. He occasionally questioned relatives about any artistic history in his family, but always came up empty. Without warning, Mary's face rose in his mind. Meat neither chilled nor eaten turns rancid. If it was so hard for me with everything I have had, if it is so hard with only wealthy blindness to deal with, Jonathan wondered if anyone had ever complimented Mary. The intensity of her eyes rose like baleful suns over his new inner landscape, and he barely controlled his impulse to cross himself. Kay was walking towards Jonathan's house when she saw him. She saw by his gait that something unusual had happened. He was walking quite slowly and glancing around as if surprised by everything he saw. Kay! he cried, running up to her. Hello, Jonathan! She smiled. Where have you been? I wasn't expecting to find you out and about. Where, where, where have I been? He said slowly, shaking his head. I have been at the bank. Oh? Nothing, nothing serious, I hope. Terribly serious, he said gravely. I was summoned by the loans manager. Kay. Kay, I don't know how to break this to you, but, but I'm, I'm going to... He sighed. Oh... This is enormously difficult. I'm so ashamed. Kay's hands flew to her mouth. What? I have to report to his office at eight o'clock sharp Monday morning. He said he'll decide what to do with me then. But how did this happen? Your, your wealth? What happened? Kay shook her head violently. Oh, never mind that now. What can I do to help my love? Is there anything? No. Sorry. Tell me what happened. What happened? said Jonathan, burying his face in his hands, his shoulders shaking. Well, what happened was, I suppose he liked me at the interview. Kay's eyes bulged. What? He, what? What interview? Her eyes suddenly narrowed. Are you crying or laughing? Jonathan, Jonathan, don't be a brute! A slight giggle escaped his heaving shoulders. Kay's jaw dropped and she whacked him hard on the arm with her umbrella. Jonathan! That's evil! He dropped his hands, his eyes streaming with tears as he laughed. Leaping up, he caught Kay in his arms and danced her around. 
Uncommon gifts, that's what he said, love of my life. And he said, put your talents to good use. Such uncommon perception. Who would have thought that a man of capital could be so capital? Kay laughed, hugging his neck. And of course you had to hear it from someone else to make it true. Jonathan stopped suddenly, his face serious. No, love. You were right, he murmured, then leaned down and kissed her full on the mouth. She felt her soul soaring as they kissed, meeting his. And it was the first glimpse of simple beauty she had ever known. Chapter 55 A Night Vigil Lawrence did not sleep well that night and was becoming thoroughly irritated with himself. What Lord Serbs said to him that love is distinguished from infatuation in that love does not make one irresponsible rang round and round his head, dizzying love into wild, decaying circles. Oh, the bliss of love in its early stages, when through wild blending it seeks to find roots enough to survive the inevitable withdrawal. It is the noise of life that silences us, thought Lawrence, the interference of others that sunders us. He yearned to know how his passion for Lydia would have unfolded without this mess to have financial dealings with a future father-in-law. How stupid, stupid! The strangest thing, the thing that sent his will crashing against his confinement, bending like the nails of a man buried alive, was that everything in his life now seemed limited. His breath caught, remembering how a few months ago he seemed to stride through his life like a confident sphere of self-generated physics, bending light and objects to his merest preference. Now he was worried about Mary, Lydia, Lord Serbs, Adam, his mother, money, the poor. <sighs> Predators make the worst prey. They are brash and awkward and feel the ignominy of showing their backsides. Having too much power makes them believe that it is themselves which create their circumstances, not that their circumstances have created them. A lion is a predator, not because of the nobility of its soul, but due to his teeth and claws. Should he lose his weapons, he keeps his soul only by shedding his nobility. Arrogance, of course, keeps empathy at bay, and empathy is a terrible thing for a predator. Should they become prey, arrogance becomes their predator. It was hard for Lawrence's mind to encompass where his life was at present. Around 3 a.m. he threw his covers aside and stood impatiently. He went over to the window and opened it. London lay before him, the crowded roofs like angular frozen waves under the moon's dim charcoal light. It was an odd time to see London. A deep wind flowed in from the Thames, 
The fires had all gone cold. The skies were clear. The air relatively fresh. Lawrence always took a few days to get used to the stench of London, similar yet so different from the fertile rankness of the country. Here, the excrement, smoke, deep tang of old sweat, rotting food and the javelin-like lavender of nobles trying to keep the smell at bay, mildewed clothing and the occasional terrible stench of the oddly familiar decomposition of a human body lost in the trash of a blind alley. These were, for the short time Lawrence stood before the window, mildly diminished, and he felt that he was standing before a soft and lovely painting, instead of being invaded by a sensation. He took a deep breath, feeling the cold air tickle his beard. As he gazed, a short man strode purposefully down the centre of the street, unusual since purposeful striding was not much in vogue, since it was hard to march on cobblestones without stumbling, and a lamplighter strolled down from the other direction, whistling, softly balancing his long lighting stick on his shoulders. There they both go, thought Lawrence, and were my life less mad, I should never have known that they existed. It is often the sign of a mind attempting to forge a new perspective, or, in extreme cases, a new personality, that random connections are made that would confuse and bewilder our waking minds. In that street lighter is a whole world, thought Lawrence, surprised at the depth of this odd connection. His hat is made by another man with three grandmothers. His trousers are patched by a good man whose wife feeds his children gin while he is at work. His lighting pole was cut from a tree which produced arrows which rained down on Muslim women during a crusade, through blowing sand, and down behind a high desert wall. Now this could go on and on. The window sill his hand rested on had been built by an older man in a state of grace who was overjoyed at the feel of brick in his hand. If the world had been created by his mind, what titanic detail was there? What odd crate had rested in the corner of his room where the paint was darker? How many pairs of trousers had hung in the tiny closet opposite the window? Had any children been conceived in this sumptuous, uneven bed? How many men had lain after love-making, swearing off their inconstant mistresses? <sighs> Lawrence shook his head, feeling that to follow these thoughts was to attempt to ford an infinite river. Personality is little more than a limitation of perspective. Lawrence, in widening his senses, was losing himself and that felt close enough to madness to be resisted with all the wan strength of his fading will. Resist as you might, laughed a sardonic voice from deep inside his spine. This earthquake needs not your blessing. Sleep was impossible. Stillness made him jittery. 
Lawrence fumbled around but could not find his matches. Lifting the small roll-top writing desk, his heart pounding as if he were stealing something, he moved over to the window and, dipping his quill more by feel than sight, he wrote the following. Problems to be solved. Then he crossed that out and wrote instead, Responsibilities. Mary, the factory, the poor, Adam Footer, K, marriage, possible dowry, tithe, Father Jones, church, Lydia, Lord Serbs, marriage, (laughs) mine, family finances, agricultural reform, shortage thereon, rationalization of finances, mother, cannot live forever. Then he crossed that last one out, writing under it, not unwell yet. Then he wrote, possible solutions. More money would deal with Mary, the poor, K, dowry, tithe, sheep. Money at hand, at start of year, about 40,000. Invested in agricultural reforms, about 15,000. Upkeep of house, 3,500. General family maintenance, 2,000. Factory, Adam Footer, about 10,000. Remaining tithe, 5,000. Paid by Jonathan, must be repaid. Remaining, 7,000. Divided with K, 2,500 each. 2,000 reserved for emergencies, required by banker. Cost of sheep and transport, 3,000. So I get 1,000 from K, I can pay Lord Serbs, have some money to woo Lydia, then go home and hold tight until spring and the rent from the tenants, and hopefully the factory will begin producing some income. Lawrence sat until dawn, scratching and re-scratching, feeling a kind of grim foreboding. It was all very risky and depended on so many variables. He stopped around dawn, not because he was tired, though he was. His eyes felt made out of sand, and there is always something depressing about dawn when one has not slept, or satisfied. But he had run out of paper. Both sides were almost black with scratches. Eventually, Lawrence decided to start the day, always a little arbitrary after a sleepless night, and washed his face and dressed. Staring into the small mirror, he saw a little vein in his left eye and wondered why there was not a red line across half his vision. Then did something he had not done in years. He closed one eye and opened the other, then switched, magically shifting his nose from side to side. Then he felt odd, foolish, and imagined Lord Serbs and a flock of solicitors spiralling out of the sun to peck and peck. Where would Caleb be, then? he murmured. Putting his dark felt hat on, he went out into the street, into the wild bestiality of deformed Londoners. 
City life had, of course, its advantages, but pristine health was not one of them. Everywhere he looked was a smallpox-ravaged face, a nebulae of pimples with eyes peeping through, a noseless face, a hairlip rising like a cave roof over blackened teeth, eyes like blue plates under the white ice of a faded cataract, men walking stiffly, wearing leather braces against gout or hernia, women without fingers, children with dull, recessed faces and hanging, vacant hair. Of course, most were functional, some good, some evil. But it was a tide of deformity so great that Lawrence felt the evenness of his features almost as a mutation. Finally, the begging and grabbing and constant parade of mute, beseeching children became too much, and he hailed a carriage, and was frightened that one child, blind, his nostrils wide, searching, zoning in on the absence of stench that revealed Lawrence's position, could be caught between the wheels and gasped when the child rolled between the axles. Then Lawrence craned his head behind and saw the child unfold and bow to the carriage among a laughing tribe of malformed children who clapped his back with covered stumps and praised his performance in droning and keening tones. "'Please take me to the Wembley Club,' called Lawrence, tapping the roof, suddenly afraid to look at the driver for fear of seeing a headless man navigating through the eyes in his chest. "'More poverty is less poverty,' he thought. "'Of course there are more child beggars now than ten years ago, since ten years ago they would have been dead.' and the strange virus of perspective entered him again. Were you born a blind orphan? Would you roll between the wheels of a carriage and take a bow? Lawrence almost cried out, shaking his head violently. I did not make the world, God damn it! So many men did it. Did his father ever mention the poor? No, save the inevitable comment with a glance at his wife that no man was poor who was happily married. Lawrence thought of the men at his club, who would have passed Mary in the street, never inviting her in, sure that they deserved privilege, that their souls had existed before death and had been promoted to privilege on birthright, that the poor were unworthy, and they themselves were made virtuous by being dropped from infinity into their golden cribs. A strange revulsion arose in Lawrence, a revulsion against self and society, against the whole sickly lie of unearned privilege. And then Lydia's face rose before him, blotting out the grey, smoky London street, soothing the numb jostling of the carriage. Larry, she whispered, try to unmake the world. You will only succeed in unmaking yourself. He leaned back against the pushing purple of his seat, wishing the world would stay still for a moment so he could see it properly. Chapter 56 The Debtor's Prison It was a high, grim brick building set north of Exeter in a dank moor. 
The road faded into gravel, then a rutted, muddy path, as if the road itself lacked the courage to make it to the end. It was raining, not true rain, more of a low-lying, cloudy drizzle, which seeped through clothes and skin and attempted to dissolve bone into chill, marrow rivulets. The building loomed over the scant, bare trees. Bats flickered and circled around Mary and Father Jones, invisible and wandering in the night. The building was three stories of heavy brick. The rain-washed tiles dribbled into the gutters. The water dripped from the eaves in a dull trickle, as if relieved to be free of such a place. Some small firelight came from within. From the small gaps in the broken windows, smoke struggled out to be speared by the rain. The entire edifice seemed like a dead womb, unable to contain its cries. Where a birthing womb pushed potential into a waiting world, so the poor house drew broken lives back to its black moor, and its iron door closed over them forever. Mary shivered. Father Jones could not refrain from crossing himself. This is where the dead gather to await extinction, where emptiness feeds on broken holes, where ghastly childhoods which have flowered into the black roses of violence, debt, and theft return to fertilize the final evil of their ending. Crows called like tired hinges in the empty trees. The horses snorted and faltered. Have you ever been to a poor house before? asked Father Jones, in a little voice. No, but Christ himself did not fear hell. We should leave our horses here. They tied the relieved beasts up and walked forward. There was a great sweating iron door. Mary touched the ring and knocked three times. The sound tolled up her arm, down her spine and into the earth. A small window eased back. Her voice came from the dark. Visiting hours is over. A bit now has yet begun. I am Father Gerald Jones, said the priest. Nah, death tonight. I need to speak to the supervisor of this place. He's a bed. Can we talk inside? I'm a little wet. There was a pause. Then the door creaked mightily and opened three feet. A short Swarthy man with an eye patch looked up at them, widening his single eye, perhaps in the hope that if he widened his one eye to the size of two, it would do almost as well. I am Father Gerald Jones. This is Mary O'Donnell. Another pause. Barnstable, come in then. They walked through the door and were in almost complete blackness. Mary blinked and almost sneezed. Gerald turned his head away, but the smell seemed inescapable. "'Go on, you get used to it,' muttered Bartholomew. "'Now come with your drop-off, but now without paperwork. We've all got to earn our ride, honest, if we want to stay on the sunny side of the shackles.' They followed Barnstable down a dark corridor, and suddenly a shriek 
which they expected to make the walls run red, rang out. It was like a spider crawling through their ears. Barnstable stopped, hitched his belt, and screamed out, his head jerking to one side. Mertel, ye bat, quit sounding, there's nothing but walls as I told ye! They came to a small, firelit room with a low table, a flagon, and some grimy playing cards. Straw lay in a corner, and a whip lay in loving coils beside it. A window hole stuffed with newsprint and rags was high and opposite the door. Barnstable sat in a chair with the balletic grace of a man with an anal complaint and regarded them. I don't take after ours without consideration, you see, and then what comes with a priest are usually in the family way, which and we don't take without further consideration, unless they not be glandular with coming life, in which case a priest is needed due to their witching, in which case we don't take them at all. He winked. Don't like the competition. She, 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 she's not my charge, stammered Father Jones. Barnstable stared at Mary for a long moment, then cocked his head as if listening to a voice from the floor. Right. We was expecting nothing, but those I don't expect, I know when I see them. And I expect you, he said to Mary, and his head darted forward, and his eye seemed to recede until it was like a hole through his head, the wall, and out into the night. Mary smiled at him, and he shook a little, started, glanced at the floor, then back to her, his eye widening to perhaps three eyes. "'No, you see,' said Mary, "'we have come to do good.' "'Good? Ay, goody,' he muttered. "'Well, out with it.' "'We have come to buy souls,' she said, stepping forward. "'Well, well to, to be an honest seller,' replied Barnstable, "'we have the rinds here, but the fruits is gone, "'so twould be cheating you something fierce. "'You have mad women and children here, yes?' "'Barkers? Oh, to be sure, yes. "'Women with children?' "'And children alone, yes, and debtors I. "'We want everyone but the madman.' "'Aye,' said Barnstable slowly, staring into her calm eyes. "'You've got plenty of that to spare already.' "'How many souls here?' Four, four, four hundred and fifty-three, if that please you.' "'How many madmen?' Four score odd.' The rest are sane. Was when they came. Mary nodded, satisfied. We'll take them. Father Jones shifted. Mary, she spun on him. I'll take them. You take your opinions and be damned. Oh, I'm sorry, Gerald, this place frightens me. What? What is your concern? He blinked, wishing he were still in the rain so he could wet himself in peace. That, that is a lot of people to put on poor relief. You've seen my wealth. You really should trust me, Gerald. I cannot do this alone. Dancing firelight brings out the angel in no one's face. But Mary's eyes seemed so gentle, almost drugged, that Gerald found it easy to slither down the bank of her will. Now, said Mary, turning instantly, Bart, how much is owed by the debtors? I don't see them figures, miss. But it's late. And me master is abed since the day's baying starts before dawn, and I sleeps in the afternoon when the day keeps the baying at bay. So wake him, my pretty Cyclops, 
said Mary, pulling out a gold sovereign and tucking it neatly behind his eye-patch. "'Lordy, lordy, now I can see!' cried Barnstable. "'I will be back directly!' After he left, Mary sank down against the wall, her dress rode up her thin legs. "'Déjà vu,' she murmured. "'Should be French for missed turn.' Oh, this place frightens me beyond... It is so familiar. I could close my eyes and describe the floor plan, the dorms, barred windows, the exercise yard like the bottom of a well. And the people here... We cannot go down to the animal, you know. While our heads are attached to our bodies, we must always have a purpose. We must always be reaching up. Even when we are on the bottom, we must... "'Climb on the faces of those condemned to share ourselves.' "'Her face crumpled. "'Oh, God, I could have been so much. "'I burn like the sun, and still people walk into walls. "'You have no idea. "'And we are so far. "'There is nothing left to... "'Gerald felt rooted to the spot. It was like watching thin skin falling in sheets from a black skeleton, infinitely strong, infinitely hollow. The sound of steps came from the corridor. Mary's head lolled, then snapped erect. She scrambled to her feet as two men entered Barnstable, and a taller man with white hair and slow, deliberate movements. The taller man had the dazed and haunted look of a sleepless man torn from bed. "'Good evening,' he said wearily. "'I can get little from Barnstable. What is your business?' Mary held her hand out. The older man kissed it. She blinked. "'So we wish to reclaim these souls here, specifically the debtors and fallen women. We propose to take them into—' parish relief in our home county, and to put them to work in a factory. What? The men, too? All I have mentioned. The law requires discharge of debt for the debtors and guarantee of charity for the women. These we can provide. We need a total of monies owed. Father Jones has brought parish certificates for a number of these. We shall send more tomorrow. But I must speak to them now. But they, they are retired. Some chained. It would take now, cried Mary, smiling. This will take little time, and I am sure you will not have to report their liberation for a month or two, leaving funds for improvement. The older man looked at Mary for a long time, then turned to Father Jones. Father, may I see the parish certificates? Father Jones fumbled in his satchel and drew forth a thick stack of vellum paper. The tall man glanced at them, then took them and riffled through them. The sheets fell together, like the beating wings of tiny birds. Very well. Let us enter. Sleep is the repose of the natural self, and the recoil of the artificial, a time when the truth of our life takes vengeance on our helpless prejudices. Each day is study each night the exam. Dreams 
are lessons that contradict us when nothing else can. I am afraid of being unprepared, we think, and scurry in a cloud of darting worries like a school of small bladed fish. And nightly we dream of being late for exams or acting a part whose lines are forgotten, and then awaken and think, Aha! I am too unprepared! Yet the truth of these dreams is that they repeat over and over. Being unprepared is only a dream. You are unprepared every night. You wake and live on. Dreams are the endless, unguessed puberty of life, drawing us forward into the future. Dreams are the only unempirical sensations we possess. We do not always dream of our future. Sometimes our future dreams of us. As we return to childhood homes and seek to awaken, so dreams return to us from who we might be and whisper to us the possible truth of our endings. What we decide today is who we shall be in 20 years. Our aged selves reach back and tell us stories of how to grow old in body and young in heart. It can take a lifetime to unlearn the prejudices of youth, which is a state of pure preference. This is what I want, we cry on waking. This is how things are, counsel dreams, attempting to shift our foundations from bed to bedrock. The door to the dormitory was locked. Barnstable drew out a key and creaked it open, and from the black mouth of sleepless ruin exhaled an air pregnant with the unborn. Mary stood before the door and raised her hands. The cold air slid between her fingers, and she shuddered, her iron will rising over the gulf of what she saw, for the air of the room was full of bad dreams. One woman screamed at a man whose skin was made of bone. A dark-haired brother leaned the creaking man into a chair, then crushed him so tightly in an embrace that the bone man's brains oozed like slow jam through the cracks in his skull. Another woman fumbled at a French door. On closing it, a wild-haired woman swung in, hung on the glass, then fell forward in an orgy of touch or feeding Mary couldn't tell. A boy in a boat kept a half-submerged rhinoceros at bay with an oar, unable to paddle forward or drive the beast away, tiring slowly, inevitably. A glowing ball from the night sky flamed into a hill, burning the very air away. A man floated above the landscape. A second comet appeared and burst the man asunder in a joyful relief of extinction. Mary took a deep breath, then screamed, Awake! And the black air around her shook and withdrew, and Mary stepped into the dark. There was a terrible clanging as she shook the foot of each bed, and awful cries and groans filled the air. Brethren, cried Mary, awake and greet the dawn! Moans blended to mutters, and the dead awoke to blindness. Barnstable brought a torch into the great hall 
and Mary's form jerked across the flickers like the blank dreams of a pecking crow. Brethren, awake! I bring you life! The creaking multiplied as wasted limbs shifted on ragged sheets. My brothers, in the morning your chains shall be undone. Will it be for the last time? She speaks the truth, hissed Barnstable. So shut it and listen. Oh, my brothers, cried Mary, her voice agonized. I am great fortune fallen from the sky, for God himself has not forgotten you here and has sent me to turn you back from the everlasting fire. There were cries from the other dormitory, cries of frightened women hearing this great voice in the darkness, the wailing of infants beating at dried breasts. Mary drew back and turned her eyes to the men. Now we wake the women. Chapter 57 Tennis and No Money Kay was too early or too late for the ball, and it broke Lawrence's heart. He was born into certainty. He had only recently been unseated. She was born into uncertainty and seemed doomed to struggle for growth under a constant cloud of perhaps. A very thin young man was calling out instructions as he lobbed balls over the net. The tennis court was cold, clay. The breath was visible. It was an indoor court and there were no fires. The roof was too low for a decent lob, but Kay was doing her best. Lawrence sat low in the stands. He did not want to interrupt and seemed to be watching his sister with his whole body. And the sensation was excruciatingly tender. There was an odd, foal-like joy to her movements. Awkward people can be shy or revel in their ungainliness. The intermixing of the two can be wonderful to watch. And Lawrence had a sudden vision of Kay as the kind of mother that children look to for play and secrecy, but never for guidance. And for the first time, he thought of her as a fertile woman, amazed that her slight frame could in fact make life. She giggled a little as she swung. He could see her will in it, her body only obeyed strong commands, and then too late. Yet there was a yearning playfulness in her movements that spoke of a bottomless need, of a hole left unfilled in infancy, that life could forever rush in and out of. Were she a composed woman playing perfectly nude, the impression could not have been more unsettling. She did see him, eventually, and her body opened like a flower even as her brows knotted. Larry, she cried, running over. What's wrong? Nothing. How much, how much longer have you got? Oh, we just started. I, I don't want you sitting there for an hour. Why didn't you write? No, it's, it's fine. Take, take your time. But it's cold in here. You will catch your death. Her eyes searched his face. He smiled and looked down. Somehow, all these years, in the over-familiar bustle and impatience of sibling life, he had never really understood how much she worshipped him. Larry, what have I... 
She paused for a moment, then nodded. Wait, Josh, tomorrow, if you please. The thin young man nodded, then began gathering up the balls. Larry, let me change. <laughs> I'm perspiring. Woo! Meet me in the cafe. I'll, I'll be ten minutes, though my hair will be a mess, of course. When she came in, her hair was still damp. Lawrence sat at a low, knotted table, sipping coffee. The small room was deserted except for an old man reading a newspaper in the corner, cutting the pages slowly, his mouth set in the eternal manner of a father who waits to give a lecture on responsibility to a son who is late. Kay asked for tea and then came over and sat down. Do you know, she smiled, I've put on a quarter stone since coming to London. Everything is so tempting. I could just sit and eat scones and clotted cream until I burst. That's why tennis. Of course, Jonathan is a wizard, so that helps the motivation. She laughed and smacked her head. <laughs> Do you know, he got a job at a bank doing some sort of financial seance or conjuration. It's hard to get him to make sense of the subject. <laughs> We're going to a supper and a play tonight with his new boss, King Lear. Oh, he loves plays that pokes sticks at fathers, of course. Do you think he... Do you think you shall marry him? Kay laughed again. <laughs> Marriage. I know women are supposed to scheme for this and that and lever men from proud height to supplicating knee, but I suppose that's not happening. Not that I could affect that anyway. Because there is a certain kind of effective intimacy. <laughs> you know, I want to change him. That's a woman's calling or career, I suppose. But I do respect and love what is already there. He's... <laughs> Well, he bites his thumb. I thought he was sucking it at first, but he showed me the callus on his knuckle. He's always chewing something, and he gestures too much. More than mother, really. And his hair in back sort of closes in on itself like ill-fitting barn doors. <laughs> that is no good, of course. And I always feel bad for the waiter who has to scrape his side of the table. He leaves so many crumbs. And always tries to push them over to my side, and not too subtly, either. And as I say... <laughs> Either a beard or none. This scrub business is plain silly, but he won't hear of it. Lawrence raised his hand. Heavens, <laughs> it's as if you are married already. Be careful, or you'll make a right world traveller of him. Kay frowned. Oh, Larry, that is much too harsh. <laughs> he is a rather uncivilized beast, and that is, of course, charming, but a woman has two things to think of that men do not, society and children. Men think of these things, of course, but a man has all his accomplishments and life to show for who he is. A woman has three things, her husband, her home, and her children. So we have improvement, cleanliness, and discipline close to our hearts, else what mark should we leave in the world? Lawrence was confused. Where did this brittle voice come from? While not wildly experienced with women, he knew enough not to light the powder keg of mother-daughter similarities. You know, continued Kay, while Lawrence wondered why women were considered the sensitive sex, I haven't quite warmed to Lydia as yet, although I'm sure I shall in time. She is quite high, isn't she? Kay shot him a fearful look. He felt quite deadened and barely noticed. She smiled. I'm quite glad, though, that she and Jonathan are such friends. Is everything quite all right, Larry? Lawrence took a deep breath. No, he sighed. Okay, okay. 
with the best intentions I offered half the remnants of our fortune, and now events have made a liar of me. Kay shot him another nervous look. Larry, what on earth are you saying? <sighs> before we left home, before I contracted with Lord Serbs for several thousand sheep, <sighs> Mother has used a note I gave Adam to clean out the account. After delivering the sheep to me, Lord Serbs tried to cash the... Kay, Kay, Kay you all right? P please, let me, let me finish. This is not the disaster you may fear. I can make it up to you. It is only for a few months, and I would not ask except I have already taken a loan on the house to pay for irrigation and extra labor and so on, and I am loath to begin selling off land that is generally a hole with no bottom. Kay, my God, you are white. Do you want to see the figures? Oh, please do not think me a villain. I meant everything I said and still mean it, but Kay, please help me. All my future hopes depend on it. Kay's eyes were flickering, wondering. Oh, Larry, why did you not plan? Kay, I am sorry. But, oh, oh, Larry, Larry, I gave her most of the money. Lawrence's heart paused in its fearful flight, then turned and sniffed the air, scenting something unholy. He gave. Mary, Larry, I gave most of the money to Mary for, for aid to the poor. She has ideas that, oh, they sweep me. I, I wanted something for, oh, my heart, my heart, how much? Over two thousand. Two thousand, repeated Lawrence dully, his heart slavered. Some. That's more than I. Do you know what two thousand pounds is, Kay? But the tithe was. And we pay it every year. The tithe, the, the tithe is to the church, which, though it may claim little from our own hearts, certainly has a claim on us through history and its beneficial effects on our tenants. My God, Kay! he cried, half standing, running his finger through his hair. The old man in the corner looked up, and a young man entered in a laughing rush. Lawrence resumed his seat. Kay drew back. Kay, you have been in possession of that money for little over a week. What What if I had chosen to do the same? Oh, God, I want to crush that vicious bitch. Do not come to me. Did you... Neither of you think of coming to me to discuss... God, Larry, you sound like mother, said Kay in a small voice. I, I sound like... cried Lawrence. That is so goddamned irrelevant. Were you thinking that I would pay some sort of dowry after you set fire to your portion, or that you would be able to live here indefinitely, and, and what? Mary, why, over your own family? Because she is a better sister than you are a brother, thought Kay, utterly lacking the courage to say it. Larry, it, it was... I understand, but it, it was my money. Why did you forget? This is not about me. This was family money. Two thousand... Oh. Heavens, what am I going to say to Lord Serbs? I've never broken an obligation, and to, st to start to start here and now. Do you know that I shall probably lose the only woman I've ever loved? That marriage is... is Larry, the money might not be irretrievable, and, and, and you know you funded her. I cannot reason with you. I'm too afraid. And I was a goddamn fool to trust you, Kay. I'm sorry, but it's true. You will remain... Child, until the day you die. No, child is unfair. It, it is something far less formed. Oh, women have too much power in this godforsaken family. Kay 
slouched in her chair like a broken egg. I'm not going to ask you for explanations. I trusted she manipulated and you fell to her. Oh, God, I wish father were here. You are doing fine, thought Kay miserably. I have lost care of my own interests, muttered Lawrence, trying to save the world. Mary, you. You are all beyond me. You, you damn. You damn your own souls. He raised his eyes. But no more. Not now. Not ever. I have awoken. I leave for home this day. Chapter 58. The Race to the Bottom. Bailiff Andrews stared evenly at the berating crowd in the tavern. "'I don't care what the charter speaks!' cried one old man. "'Women can't vote, and God help us if they could. "'They'd be abandoning their children to care for strangers,' said another. Bailiff Andrews raised his hand and said, "'This is not about voting. "'The charter says that any citizen in good standing, seventeen or older, can run for mayor. "'It does not specify the sex.' Loud voices were raised. Bailiff Andrews was wise enough to know that outrage must be allowed to echo away before a civilized word can be had. After a minute or two, he lifted up a letter and continued. Mary O'Donnell has offered to quit our parish if she is not elected. This is not a formal contract, but I, for one, believe her. I know that many of you want her gone, enough to do violence as the late Farmer Jigger did. But she is guarded now, and since she has broken no laws, I have no power to compel her. A middle-aged, balding man muttered, Damn knotted Bob for keeling over! There was a general murmur of agreement. Age had finally come for the old bachelor. He had missed a council meeting and been discovered in his little cottage, dead in his bed. Bailiff Andrews let his lips curl a little. He was not impressed at knotted Bob's death being viewed as a political inconvenience. But, in his view, the town, the villagers, were mostly children whose bottomless selfishness was only barely contained by the slow whips of calm law. Norbert, a stonemason, and also the village crier, raised his self-consciously mellifluent voice. But what strange theatre is she about? Even if we allow her on the pulpit, no man would vote for her. Garth laughed. <laughs> but what great comedy it would be, brothers. I'd risk her ruling over me like Boda Cheer just to hear her mad speeches from the pulpit. <laughs> I'll wager she'll command us to invade hell itself and stitch angel wings on any resisting demons. There was a ripple of bitter laughter. Mary's supposed idealism had always been viewed with base suspicion by citizens used to working hard with hard hands. Those who focus on manipulation by language are the natural enemies of those who have to actually move matter to get things done. The voices and the hands are so often at each other's throats. The old man jumped up, at least as rapidly as he could, is there a man here who would vote for the wi This girl, Mary O'Donnell? Silence. The grim shaking of heads. 
He turned and glared at Bailiff Andrews. And ye truly believe she will quit us when she loses? I cannot guarantee that as a matter of law. But what do ye think? Bailiff Andrews held the letter up again. She swears so in this. He paused. I have great respect for her vows. There was the murky silence of practical men striving to pierce the veils of a manipulative soul. They had all fought each other at least once as children and youths, and remembered that at least half the fistfights had erupted from the lies of women. "'We can't fight her,' said the bald man hopelessly. He glanced at Bailiff Andrews furtively. "'She has strange powers. Uh, of words, I mean.' More silence. "'I just want her gone,' said the baker in a pitiful voice, folding his hands over his large belly in the manner of fat men who imagine their hands can somehow hide their corpulence. Norbert said, "'Look, these are good problems to have. Beats starving and eating tree bark after Lent, right? We put her on the ballot, make sure no one votes for her, then she goes.' "'And Lord Larry is gone,' said the old man. "'Without him, she's got even less to stay for.' The baker said, "'And if she goes, this factory and the scavenging scabs will go too. I'll wager all of you.' "'Aye, back to our ways,' cried the old man. "'Tried, tested, and true.' Their supernatural fear of Mary warred with their fear of any plan she proposed. But the idea of her leaving and taking her workers with her was too seductive, too imminent to resist." They knew, deep in their instinctive hearts, that Father Jones should have stood between themselves and Mary. But the priest's heart had been scraped out in childhood, and the endless heartlessness of his mother had been thumped down in its place. Among the leaders of the community, absent fathers had created a matriarchy without balance, without limits, and feminine willpower had become the descending physics of their cracking world. After the short pretense of a debate, it was decided. Chapter 59 Mavis and Jake in town Ooh, The difficulties they faced were considerable. No one would let them hire a cart and horse the tribe of the loom workers was still far removed from the tribe of the village. Due to the thefts, it was dangerous for the men to go into the village at all. They were not only shunned, but actively threatened. In the oldest fence of decent society, the poor men were reviled for their criminal shiftlessness, the poor women for their loose habits. It is very hard to trust those with nothing to lose. They sat on a large mound of woven cloth and had no way to transport it to market. Debates raged among them. Would they go to Exeter, hire a cart, and bring it back? What about taking a small sample, getting some coin for it, and using that to buy a cart and horse? The conversation often degenerated into blind resentment of the villagers, who would not sell them food or drink, and then complained of theft. Social negotiation, especially on collective economic matters, is a notoriously difficult Art, and many blind turns and near fights were risked before 
a solution was decided. A horse would be stolen, then returned with fair rental, after the cloth was sold. Jake and Mavis were to take the cloth to Exeter and get the best price they could, then return and divide the proceeds. There was some conflict over who would get to go, since everyone would rather ride in the open air and spend a night in town than squint over the looms. Mavis and Jake were finally chosen. Mavis was felt to have gotten them into their current position by first turning the tide of anger over Lawrence's initial offer. Jake had driven Adam Footer off, and so won their confidence. Jake stole away one clear night and returned with a fine and powerful dray horse, which was widely admired. The woven cloth was rolled into tight bundles, but despite artful arrangements, there was no way to get all the cloth onto the one horse. A good deal of it was lashed to its back. Since most of the workers were out of money, haste was essential. With all the sensitivity of natural thieves, combined with the absence of Lawrence, they knew that any more predations on the social body would have dire consequences. The cost of eliminating small thievery is high, but there comes a time when enough theft justifies a strong reaction. Mavis and Jake had to walk, leading the horse, and the return journey was estimated at five days. Mavis and Jake set off early the next morning. It was two days' brisk walk to Exeter, and the journey was completed largely in silence. They had to pose as a married couple to save money on rooms, but Mavis did not get much sleep. Various fears crossed her mind, returning to the factory to find her child gone, being unable to sell the cloth, that Jake would run off with the money. The first night she gazed at his snoring form with all the mute frustration of a sensitive soul regarding a callous one sleeping soundly. This midnight vigil is almost always the lot of women who sit and stare at men who doze off after, or even during, big fights. Mavis had spent a good deal of her life around drinking men, and so had developed an almost alchemical skill at measuring their intake. She liked them drunk enough to mute their sexual advances, but not so drunk that the devil in the heart of every alcoholic was loosed. In fact, by exposing herself to the worst aspects of destructive masculinity, Mavis had removed from her heart and loins every desire for men, and relished her tranquil life free of their fumbling resentments and bullying whims. They made it to Exeter the next morning, a Sunday, market day, and sat and discussed how best to proceed with the sale. Jake was of the emphatic opinion that no honest merchant would believe that the cloth was theirs, so they would be reported and imprisoned as thieves. Mavis admitted that this was a possibility, but argued that there would be a vicious markdown if they were forced to fence their goods. Her contradiction enraged Jake, and he seized her arm and demanded whether she ever wanted to see her child again, which Mavis took to mean that she could be jailed or that he would kill her. Either way, she took refuge in the passive mask of self-erasure, which pacified him and allowed her to plan her course of action. Now, every person who has something essential to gain from recognizing his own kind generally develops this ability to a deep and unfathomable degree. 
Two men traveling in the same coach can, within 30 seconds, establish themselves to each other, their education, affluence, line of work, and, if necessary, sexual preferences. In addition, those to whom this kind of social identification carries grave risk develop it to a silent and eerily accurate degree. Compatibility, in this sense, is largely an unconscious, invisible, and unmodifiable process. Try to be something you are not, and you will only attract phonies. Any social interaction which is controlled is killed, and only the dead will orbit. This method was how Jake and Mavis contacted the Exeter underworld. They could not afford a good hotel, and so were afraid to leave their goods unguarded. They ended up sitting in front of the inn, shedding their new shells of disciplined industry, and waiting. Soon enough, a shifty man came up and inquired as to their business. On being told that they had something to sell quickly, they were instructed to wait, and soon another man came up. And it struck Mavis that were criminals to become policemen and run the courts besides, they would be able to wander the streets, pick certain faces from the crowd, and jail them by telling the judge to just Well, look at him! Defiance, resentment, cruel humor, and a lifetime of fear, greed, and rage, they mark men as surely as if they grow horns, and such predators remain hidden only to those who do not see their own horns. The man was of medium height with curly brown hair, low ears, blue eyes, and scattered freckles. Good morning, they ye said the man. I be Angus. Do I go by gas or ang? If ye prefer, what do ye have? Cloth, said Jake. Cloth? Aye, and which wagon did it tumble from? Of course, they could have said that it was theirs, but they couldn't prove it, and that would have marked them as rank amateurs. We have a horseful. Show it to me, said Angus. They retired to the rear of the inn, to the stables, and unlocked their stall. The cloth was stacked in the front, away, of course, from the horse's fertilizing end, and covered with straw. They took a bundle out into the light. Jake cut the ties with a strong knife and passed it to Angus. The man's mouth dropped on touching the bundle. He unrolled several feet, running his fingers slowly along its length. Non-chemical sensuality is rare in the underworld, but it radiated from Angus like a deep opium Sunset. Bugger me with a barge pole, he muttered. This is the work of fairies, no doubt. He stood slowly, his hands unwilling to part with the cloth. His eyes narrowed. Where be this from? Jake smiled. Ye acts only because ye spy in a special value, eh, Angie? You're no cloth soul, replied Angus, his face softening slightly in a smile. This be like the butter of a baby's breath. Where? We can get more, said Mavis. Oh, that is well. Whatever witchery is in the making, that is most well. So even... <laughs> these are tiny, tiny fingers at play, but what a wool to use. It's a portrait by thumbprint. Where is it from? We have a source, said Mavis, but how much is it worth? Worth? Well, as a novelty, the first of it... <laughs> he laughed. Listen, this could make us all legit. 
This is a finding and off. You bring me glass, I say it is a diamond. Does that let us trust each other? I hope so. I can move as much as you bring me. But if it be regular, then it's a shop where we want him. A shop with some snooty fronts to speak sweet to the moneyed. Listen, this is poor wool that touches like fine silk. Oh, damn you for blind fools. Take good wool and this shall hang like water. Jake grinned. This is well. Your secret. Is it fairies? <laughs> Not say we be fairies, replied Jake. Blunt and hard fingers are the sole secret. Angus frowned. Not so, fair sir. It would take an infant's fingers to weave this even. This is we folks work, or sorcery, or a machine of some species. But tell me plain, if the uh, source is to remain secret, how long did it take to make this lot? Mavis took a step towards him. We can deliver twice this every month. Angus staggered back and raised his hands. <laughs> Nay, ye stretch my ears to the snapping a month. Nay. "'Sell as much as we have here, and we return in a month with more,' she said. "'There is an argument that the greatest pleasure in the world is that of labouring in secret "'and finding that one's personal metal is the purest gold.' "'And the joy in her voice certainly supported that belief. "'How much?' asked Jake, his eyes gleaming. "'The horse snorted and shifted, raising a wet hoof.' Angus calculated rapidly, the skin below his right eye twitching. Twenty pounds, he said finally, some of which I shall have to borrow now. Don't fast for more unless you be able to vault legit all at once. Mavis hesitated. Jake did not. Done, he said. When can we get the money? Well, let me leg it around town, see? Then we'll meet tonight, and since you were an honourable gentleman and scorned a natural angle, I shall stand here proper dinner. We shall meet here at sundown and I shall bring you smaller mobile coinage. And I'll leave you this coin for this bundle here, as I shall need it to extract more coin from my brethren. Angus pressed a gold coin into Jake's hand, rolled up the bundle of cloth with acrobatic dexterity, then almost ran from the stable yard. God damn it on a savage stick! cried Jake, and grabbing Mavis sent them lurching through the broken crates and random refuse in a mad and giddy dance. A gold coin presents many aspects to a drunkard, especially one who believes he has walked the straight and narrow for long enough that he deserves a good pushing over. Ah, addictions do have that wonderful aspect. Virtue is seen as the gathering of the right of self-reward, which is always vice. And thus, of course, there is no way out of the trap. So Jake looked at the gold coin and saw the following. A sky-down view of a whiskey glass and a beer flagon when the head is gone, a sign that he was a virtuous soul who deserved a heady night's reward, a loosening of the tight bolts of generosity and a giddy night of storytelling and backslapping with new friends. A woman, perhaps several, perhaps sequential, perhaps all at once. A night that would rise as memorable over the grey wash of hunted Lost or wasted nights. Respect. Love. Justification. And many more. It is in fact quite a misnomer to say that a gold piece is the coin of the realm. It is, in fact, the coin of many realms. 
Mavis knew better than to argue with a man bent on drinking. On countless occasions, she had placed herself between a thirsty man and his drink and ended up with a man-shaped hole going straight through her heart. So she settled in and had some tea and watched Jake order loudly, drink slowly, expound pompously, and saw the transformation with the heart so used to the sequence that it knew every step. Jake the Red was slowly replaced by a generic drinking man who erased almost every aspect of Jake's being. She almost expected his hair to change from flaming red to a heady froth. When Angus returned at dusk to join their table, Jake was slow, steady, focused, and, like all conditioned to failure, belligerent in the face of his good fortune. Mavis used Angus as a shield, keeping her peace about the existence of the factory, and talking over Jake's belching interruptions about the rates of production, manpower, and delivery schedules. She also listened to Angus about the quality of the wool, the best sizes and shapes of cloth. Correctly surmising that Mavis could not read, he wrote instructions in a kind of hieroglyphic shorthand common to all illiterate communication. And all the while, deep in the recesses of her battered maternal heart, a heart empty of men and love and home and family and any beneficial history, a vision grew of her child growing bright and healthy, held aloft in the swaddling cloths of the most finely woven wool. Eventually the conversation slowed. Jake's head kept a decaying metronome beat, lowering to drink and rising less and less, before finally resting on the table, rousing slightly only when the innkeeper tried prizing the flagon from his sodden fingers. Angus and Mavis went out to the stable where he handed her a tightly packed pouch of coins. It took some time for Mavis to count them. The denominations were so disparate that it was clear he had ranged far and wide to gather them. After they transferred the rolls of cloth to his horse, Angus bade good night and rode into the darkness. Mavis paid the innkeeper for a separate room, one which locked securely. She tucked the pouch deep in her bosom, forming a packed metallic third breast, then sat in bed, her arms folded across her chest. The night settled in, and the sounds of drinking floated up the stairs. Mavis thought involuntarily of the number of times she had sat thus under the covers, waiting for the grim miracle of liquid flowing uphill in the heavy, pausing steps of a drunken man making his way up the stairs, like a salmon vaulting a series of carpeted waterfalls. To spawn, she thought with a shudder. I was so used to the idea that men were useful that it was quite a shock to discover that life is so much easier without them. Not for the first time she cursed her ample breasts and their uncanny ability to provoke lust in parasitical men. My bad back brings back bad men. 
feeling safe in her well-locked room, Mavis allowed herself to fantasize a little and dreamt of a warm cottage, a sunlit garden, and her child waddling in white clothes. Mavis awoke to a horrible, familiar sound, a drunken man attempting to enter quietly. Little insect noises came from the door as he tried a key in the lock. Her heart pounding painfully, Mavis sat up and looked wildly around for a place to hide the money. She could find none, that there was a bare table, no windows, and the bed was on the floor. She heard the lock click open, and grabbed a wide handful of coins and stuffed them into her undergarments. Torn between flight and feigning, she surrendered to instinct and pretended sleep, holding the bag by her side. The door creaked open, and she heard Mottles breathing and smelled his fumes. "'Mavis!' hissed Jake. She did not move. He was close, very close. She felt the bag slowly lift from her hand, heard the tinkling rustle of the coins. He straightened and turned away. She took a deep, slow breath, a tear trickling from her eye. Jake closed the door behind him, and Mavis opened her eyelids, half expecting to see him still looming over the bed. The room was empty. The single candle guttered and went out. Waiting a few minutes, she reached into her groin and gathered the coins, then sat up and tied them up in the pillowcase. Taking her keys, she stole out of the room and peeked down from the top of the stairs. The common room was bright with red cheeks, greasy hair and low smoke. Jake stood at the bar, clearly deep into his second wind, ordering a whiskey. Taking a deep breath, Mavis came down the stairs. A drunk's vision is generally more peripheral than central, and he caught sight of her immediately. His hand grabbed at the money pouch he had tied to his belt. Mavis, come to the fire and have a drink with me, he shouted. She came up to him. You have the money? she asked softly. He grinned and winked. Oh, I'll treat thee. Unless barely at it somewhere other than each other's skulls for once. Good, she smiled, feeling dizzy. I, I was worried. Most of it I kept about me, not in that pouch. I was worried about being robbed in such a hole as this. Robbed? He cried, gesturing at the bar. None of my friends here would do such a mischief. I'm going out to check on the horse she said, stepping back from his wandering hands. She leaned in and murmured, Angus gave us more than we expected, but don't worry, I'll keep it safe. Jake stared at her for a long moment, considering... Ah, well, the nag deserves a good once-over. I'll accompany thee. He lurched forward and she steadied him. Come on, then, sighed Mavis. Jake leaned on her heavily as they went out to the stables. The cool night air made her realize how much she was sweating. 
The horse Jake had stolen, evidently unused to the vapours of drink, snorted and backed away from the door as Mavis unlocked it. Peering in, she gasped. That horse is sick, Jake! He belched. What? That nag's as healthy as a goddamned horse, you dumb nag! Look for yourself! He growled and peered forward. It's his foreleg! He leaned in. Closer! It's infected! That'll cost us half our profits! Jake leaned closer. Mavis grasped the metal rung of the lower half of the stable door and hauled it shut against his head with all her might. Jake gave out a deep, violated groan and staggered back, holding his spurting hair. Mavis lifted her pillowcase of heavy coins and brought it down over the back of his head. "'Ah, you scurvy bitch!' He groaned thickly, falling to his knees. Mavis struck him again, praying that the scant fabric would hold. Jake the Red fell to the ground, his hands wandering, grasping at the air. "'I'll find you and skin ye properly, hellish witch! I'll track ye by the scent of your brat!' "'Of course,' thought Mavis with dull finality. "'Men.' She looked around and saw a rusty horseshoe hanging on the wall. Tearing it down, she gripped Jake's hair and twisted his face upwards, breathing a momentary prayer to a very dark god. She brought the horseshoe down, aiming for his eye. She missed and shattered his nose. His body heaved, his animal side rising rapidly through a sea of drink, She raised the horseshoe again and brought it down. The tip plunged into his eye socket. She was sprayed by the seed of his vision. He screamed. Revolted, she let go of his hair, grasped the outside of the horseshoe and leaned forward, pushing it down in terrible inches. His body leapt, violently throwing her clear, and he rolled and thrashed, his arms raising to his face, groping but missing. Ghastly, inhuman noises gurgled. Blood sprayed up from his broken nose. The enormous horse shied away from him in a wild jerk. Mavis fought an elemental urge to flee and waited until Jake brought his head up, then grabbed the sack of coins and swung it full at the horseshoe protruding from his eye. She felt the meaty shock all the way up her arm. His body convulsed with incredible violence. Then... All animation left him, and he fell forward, the horseshoe striking the sawdust. He breathed in slow, gasping, fading heaves for a minute, perhaps longer, and then everything was still, except for the panting of the horse. Mavis's vision ran red. She was stunned to find at her core a deep, almost reptilian sense of justice, and prayed for strength to whatever new god had taken her under his dark wing. She tried to roll Jake's body over. She could not, but was able to find his knife and cut the coin pouch free of his belt. She stood and talked to the terrified, snorting horse, stroking its neck. 
She knew she could only calm it to a certain degree without taking it away from the smell of blood. So she spent several minutes trying to get the beast to step over Jake's corpse, until finally it whinnied and almost jumped over it. She tugged it into the yard, and then her heart dropped away as she realized that the gate from the stables to the street was locked. Mavis leaned her head against the horse's neck. Sometimes in life we must wait. Either will comes to us, or it does not. After a minute or so, she raised her head and stepped back. She could leave without the horse, of course, but she would have to leave now. Did Jake or me tell him where we was from? They'll trail me in the morning. Jake knew the way back. Can I find the way in the night with half a pound of coin clinking at me waist? I can't claim that he attacked me. He did nothing to me at the inn. No one heard his threats. I took him out to the stable. None saw him rob me, just that I now have all the money. I could hire a boy to take me, but where? So late. And he would know where I had gone. I can't wander around a town at night with this much coin. Ears lurk to hear such sounds. I can't ask for directions. Now, tonight, there would be too many questions. Stay until dawn. This thought was terrifying because it was inescapable. Her mind raced, constructing mad, convincing castles. She had not had to lie convincingly for some years, but her false brains were never buried far below our honest ones. Finally, she nodded, took several deep breaths, wiped her eyes, and went back inside. The innkeeper gave her a gap-toothed grin. "'Where's your husband?' "'Face down in the straw like the baby Jesus,' she said. "'That's too much drink or too much woman, but we'll get him back to his room,' he sighed. "'That's as ye see fit, but he lost a fair amount of dinner and drink from both ends as he fell.' If your stomach is stronger than his, Samaritan, as ye see fit, me, I'd let him wash himself in the morning. Acting like a newborn don't mean being treated like one. The innkeeper wrinkled his nose and nodded. I'm up first thing, she continued, and I'll need a plain scrap of paper on how to escape Exeter and get to Plymouth. It'll be no help to me come sunup. You need a wake-up. What time does your stable boy come in? Dornish. Send him up to me first thing. First thing, mind. I need the boy to run an errand for me. She bade the man good night, went upstairs, and closed the door. Our adaptive nature is not designed to switch so suddenly from prey to predator to prey again. Mavis was dizzy, disconnected. Her mouth was dry, her forearms hurt from squeezing and plunging. The muscles of murder are, of course, very rarely called upon. But, in justice, we are angels and animals, capable of drawing constitutions on paper and swords on those who threaten our young. Long though her night was, Mavis was sustained by the bloody bedrock of just retribution, which was the knowledge that only she or Jake were destined to make it through that savage span of dark. <laughs>